Welcome to the One More Jump podcast by Rise Pole Vault. Today, we have three-time Olympian and 2008 bronze medalist Derek Miles on. What an awesome opportunity I had to be able to talk with one of my childhood heroes. I used to watch this guy on Neo Vault and YouTube whenever it came out and all these different things. And I just really looked up to him for his aggressiveness and his big giant monster plant and just his consistency, to be honest with you as an athlete. But the cool part is that now we can look up to him as one of the world's greatest coaches. He has been a coach at uh, University of South Dakota for a long time now, but he really is just an incredible student of the sport and somebody who is progressing the sport at a very rapid pace and uh, just an absolute honor to have him on. And the cool thing is, is as a kid, I thought he was looked like just like an aggressive, good pole vaulter, but also a really nice guy. And it uh, turns out that this podcast confirmed both of those things and just feel very fortunate to be able to have him on. So I hope you enjoy this podcast with Derek Miles. get into it and we can i guess i guess we just start with um you know i know a lot about your professional career i uh you know followed you then but i have no idea where all this began for Derek miles sure well it started off pretty bad um i'll tell you that much i i graduated high school about 5'8 145 pounds as a matter of fact i got pulled over when i was 17 by the california highway patrol for looking too young to drive so yeah he and the funny thing is i drove this big nasty truck it was like my dad bought this truck um when i was young to go hunting with and at some point it just kind of hung around and at some point when i turned 16 he's like well i guess if you're going to drive you can take that truck so i drove this big monster truck and i was all legs anyway so i sat really low i just have to kind of like put some sweatshirts or something underneath it so i could get up (laughs) tall enough and it was a train wreck but um I, I dabbled in everything. I played a lot of sports. I played soccer. I played baseball. Um, I did football. I did swimming. I did, you know, tennis sports and racquetball. Um, just kind of average at everything. Um, borderline average and terrible at stuff. I rode the pine a lot in football as a, a little guy. In California, our tight end was like 6'4", 220, you know? So right. Where, where really quick, just not to interrupt, where, where is this at in California? So I grew up in Sacramento, California. Okay. Gotcha. Yep, gotcha. Yep. So born and raised. And I mean, our high school had five, 600 kids per class in it, you know, so a couple thousand kids in there and, and there were multiple high schools and with you go five minutes, one direction, you run into another high school. So it was competitive. I mean, there were a lot of kids that were pretty athletic and I just wasn't one of them, but um, stumbled into pole vaulting as just a high jumper. I did that in junior high. They never let pole vaulting until you were a high schooler. And then one day they came out and they said, well, the high jumper is going to do a running workout. So if you want to do the running workout, you can, or you can go lo- learn the pole vault. I'm like, uh, head that way. So, and then I just had a blast with it, kept, kept moving my way through. But, um, you know, I think by the time I graduated, I jumped 14, six, never made the state meet, nothing like that. And then, uh, 
college came around and I'm like, well, I could just go to Sac State, but my dad really, my mom and dad were both strongly urging me to explore other avenues rather than stay in the state and go. Cause my dad worked at Sac State, California State University of Sacramento, and he wanted me to get out and see something different. So I'm pretty sure he called the University of South Dakota because my mother had graduated from there. And so I'm pretty sure he called the coach and asked him to call me. And that's, I think, how it started. So oh, he wow. was the only coach that ever called. Uh, I wrote letters to random places. I don't even know how I picked them out of the hat. I remember Arizona State. I wrote a letter to one time back in the days when you had to write letters. Um, <laughs> and I just, you know, never heard anything from anybody. And, and this was the only place where every couple of weeks the coach would call. And uh, so I'm like, well, I guess I'm going to South Dakota because I want to pull vault. And that's kind of how that all started. And went out with my dad and moved in and had no family back there. I had a grand, my grandparents lived there in the summer, um, okay. but not very, they, they left as soon as it got a little cold. So right. really the family just went and figured it out. So but, what part of the state is South Dakota university of South Dakota? In? Yeah. So it's kind of, if you come down to the, the Southeast corner of where all three States come together. So you got Nebraska, Iowa, and South Dakota. Right. There's like about 20 minutes from that intersection of all those states is where South Dakota is. So it's probably an hour and a half from Lincoln. Um, oh, really? Might That's be, yeah. close. Yeah, because yep. we, we drive out to Colorado all the time and uh, and we go through Lincoln. And I didn't yep. know it was that close. Holy yep. cow. Yep, it's close. Probably four hours to Minneapolis. Um, so it's kind of centrally located around some of those kind of uh, Midwest Big Ten, Big 12 schools, you know. So Right. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, that's interesting. So in high school, so you were, which is, it's really wild because now you, you know, if you look at like a Wikipedia or whatever of you is you're like six, three, like one ninety, one ninety five or something like, yeah. so how, when did that happen? You know, I remember picking up about 20 pounds my freshman year in, in college. And, and I, I I'm assuming over the, I don't ever remember feeling like, Oh, I just popped up three inches. But I mean, my driver's license, I remember when I was 16, 17, said five, nine, 145 pounds on it or something like that. Whoa. So I think the 20 pounds, I must've picked up an inch or two there. I was super late bloomer, you know, so I wouldn't even be surprised if, if my sophomore year in college, I was growing a little bit then too. So I was right. always the small guy. I mean, I, I tried playing basketball, but you know, everybody was just so much taller than I was football. Everybody was faster and stronger than I was just really behind the power curve on that. That's very interesting because I just kind of just thought of something in my head. Uh, you know, you, you, you know, you had your high school career, which 14, six is, that's not a bad high school jump. Like it's still a pretty good, that's a pretty good high school jump, yeah. you know, like, and then, and then in college, um, you know, you went through college, but then the crazy thing is, is I wonder if that played into you being able to vault so late in your career because you had developed you know, like into college and, yeah. and stuff like that, instead of like the dude who's like got a beard their freshman year and in high school, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that's got something to do with it. Well, it, it's probably a lot opposite of Chris, you know, I mean, I coach a guy now that, you know, when I knocked on his door as a junior, he was six, four and had a beard when he answered the door. You know what I mean? <laughs> I just, I was nothing like that dude, you know? And I think, um, you know, I always thought about it in pole vaulting in terms of like, it seems like you get this window, right. And that window maybe of 10 or 12 years where you can kind of really go after it. And I think it just depends on when you physically get to the spot where you can really exploit that window, you know? And yeah. I think 
the the faster and stronger you get, you know, and the, the more pounding you take on your body, I think at some point when you jump, you know, 18, six, 19 feet, I think your windows started, you know what I mean? But for me, I just kept, I mean, even college, I, I don't think I would have made a first round national meet because I was division two, mm-hmm. University of South Dakota was division two a long time ago. And so comparatively in today's day and age, I would have barely made the first round. I think by the time I was a fifth year senior, I jumped 17, two or three at the Bruce Jenner classic in the summer after I graduated. And right. so it's like, you know, that I still hadn't really gotten anything figured out by the time I graduated college. It was only after college when I finally got hooked up with Bell Athletics and those guys that kind of started figuring things out a little bit and developing, you know, physically. And so it's weird. It's like similar to Jeff. Yeah. Uh, like, cause he was like a 17 and a half guy out of college and then went to bell and then yeah. all of a sudden, you know, develops into well, uh, a great pole vaulter later in their career. Yeah. It's funny because I remember when I, when I went to, to bell athletics, I was kind of, uh, you know, kind of googly eyed when I walked in the door and saw Jeff, cause he was the big dog at the time. Right. And if you look at pictures, when he made the team in 96, just this baby face kind of skinny dude, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then when I was there in like late nineties, two thousands, it was like, dude, this guy's monster. He's huge, you know, like right. bowed up Superman kind of a thing. And it's just interesting. I think he probably traveled a similar case where he just, he just, you know, developed a little bit later, you know, he wasn't the high school kid that was six, 385 pounds. You know, I think he probably followed the same line. Right. And I guess you could kind of, uh, relate that to, uh, you were talking about Chris, which if you, if you don't know Chris Nelson, you've been living under a rock, um, just won the silver medal, uh, which is incredible. And we can talk about that. There's, there's a lot of things that I'd really like to pick your brain about, but, um, you know, like Chris, I mean, he's been, He's been hammering five meter plus poles for a long time, you know, yeah. like since he was in high school, you know, yeah. and, and, uh, that, I think that, that, you know, that window, you know, kind of opened up and I don't know, it's, everybody's got their own path through this whole thing. I just find sure. it very interesting that you and Jeff's kind of like, it was like a similar type story. Like it's like yeah. a guy who is decent vaulter in high school, decent vaulter in college, develops after college and then jumps until they're 40. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I, know. I know it's funny. I mean, I would have never, even while I, I got to know Jeff really well when I moved down there and trained, I don't think I even saw that our paths were very similar until way late. You know what I mean? I, I don't know why. I think I was just more uh, engulfed in the process and watching him jump and listening to what Earl says to him and you know, the, the differences in our jumps and the differences in our training. But yet at the time when we were on the 2008 Olympic team together, I remember him saying, well, no, this is my last year. I'm done after this. Right. And I remember thinking like, how do you get to that spot? Like, how do you be able to get to 40 years old and still jump 70 and make Olympic teams? And then how do you get to the spot where you say, yeah, I'm ready to be done, you know? And I'm like, I just don't get it. And then like four years later, I'm in 2012. I'm like, this is my last one. I made the team. I'm turning 40. And I'm like, wait a minute. It sounds a lot like Hartwig, you know? So I think I learned a lot of things from Hartwig over the years. Um, Things that, that were uh, completely instrumental into my development as a, as an athlete. You know what I mean? And a lot of, a lot of that comes from Earl Bell and some other people too. And Lucky Huber who did my training. But, you know, I think watching him, 
and just kind of seeing what he does on a daily basis. Just when I was training with him, not like we weren't doing the same training workouts, but I would watch him when he comes into the building, when he left the building and just studying him a little bit, watched how he traveled and, and it was, I was just soaking it up. I was just a sponge, you know, trying to learn. From yeah. Him. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. So I, I guess like, like one of the questions I had on here that I, you know, when you, when you were at Bell's, like that was one of history's best training groups, man. Like yeah. that was, that was insane. Yeah. Like it was, it was how, nuts, you know, tell, tell for the people who don't know about yeah. it, like kids now, they might not like you know, some kids may know about it, but like some kids don't understand, like there was a training group at yeah. the, it was special. It was a special time. And I don't think, I think back in the day, there just weren't the clubs that there are now, you know, there are mm. so many clubs that are, that are prevalent in the United States these days. And, and we just didn't have that. And I, I, when I was in high school, there was no internet. And it was like, if you wanted to watch pole vaulting, I had two VCR tapes. One was the final 13. And I can't remember who made that video. It was literally the final 13 vaulters of the Olympics in 88, um, dubbed to Van Halen. And every pole like, vault video is dubbed to Van Halen. <laughs> I know I, I can't, it was unbelievable. And I just, I wore the, I wore that thing out till it broke and I freaked out. And the other video I had was a Don Hood video and it had like instructional mm. things and then uh, that has van that has that don hood video has van halen uh at the end of it i think it's got uh a highlight reel with brad persley and like a bunch yeah, of other yeah. people on that yeah. i can't remember the music on it but i remember wearing that out because the last 20 30 minutes of it were just you know elite vaulters it had joe dial on there and it had all those guys persley and billy olson and yeah. um tully and everybody on there um, but it was, it was, those are the only two things I ever saw of pole vaulting. The only thing I ever like, Oh, this is what it's supposed to look like, you know? But like when we went, when I went there, it was like, since it was the, really the only club up and running, I initially got connected with them through Chad Harding. Mm. And we both made a world university team in 1997. We were both in grad school and we both finished in the top 10 um, at the U S championships, which I wasn't even supposed to be, I didn't even jump the qualifier to get in. It was 60 to get in. And I jumped 50 with at the Drake relays with my standards at like 25. It was everything I could do to jump 50 yeah. and the biggest pole I could hang on. And that was it. And I got lucky. And somehow I snuck into, to the U S champs because I put my name on there thinking, well, if I jump a 60, I'll have it in there already. And I never jumped a 60. So I'm like, well, I didn't make it. And then a couple of my teammates, a quarter miler and a triple jumper in the day, we're down there and my coach lucky he called and he said hey you're on the list and i'm like really and he's like yeah drive down here so i drove down the day before and i jumped the next day and that's when chad and i finished in the top 10 went to the world university games and we spent two weeks in italy talking and that's when i really found out a lot more about bell athletics and and he's like man you should come down and, and train with us sometime and i'm like yeah that'd be awesome that'd be really cool and i thought well you know, we'll see what the timeline is. And I went like a year and a half, like just crap in the bed, like just maybe jumping 20, maybe a 30 here and there, not crap in the bed, but like, you yeah. know, com compared to what you were trying to do, jump a 60 or higher. Right. And I did that for a year and a half. And I'm like, you know what? I should probably just, I'm out of grad school um, or I'm, I'm finishing up grad school. I, I should just get a job and be done with this thing. And, uh, finally it's kind of a last minute effort. I said, well, I'll just go down there and I'll check out the athletics and hang out with Chad a little bit. And that was like 99. 
Um, I think 99. That was when it was starting. That's to when pop I went off, down there. Man. And that's, yeah. And that's when it was like, we even had guys that were not in the United States that were jumping there. There was, um, gosh, I'm going to forget his name now. Um, I can't remember which heart goes online. He would tell me, yeah. <laughs> um, he's like an encyclopedia. Um, God, what was his name? It was like a Turkish falter or someone like that. I can't remember, but he was a 70 guy. And then Hartwig was there and Chad was there. This was pre, no tie was there. I think he had just moved there. Um, and it was, I think actually the funny thing about this is that I think I was the last guy that, that got voted in. And I think the process was before that, that everybody would get together and they would have a, dis- a discussion about whether or not they want to invite another athlete to come into their training block. And I think, oh, wow. I think that was the way with, with, um, the guys that had come in before me. And I think I had heard through the rumorville that, that I think I was the last guy that they all got together and say, Hey, we're going to invite him after, after this was after the 2000 or right after the 2000 trials, like invite him to come down or move here full time. Mm. Um, so were but, people like banging on Earl's door, like, please let me in type thing. Or was it that I just wanted to work with certain people. I think, I don't know. I think Earl would probably better answer that or maybe Hartwig too, because he had been there for so long, but I know they were very protective of who's the training group. What's the culture of the training group on our, and, and is the person we're bringing in going to be a positive impact on that? And I think they were right on the money with that. You know what I mean? I think the more I'm around pole vaulting, the more I figure out that the chemistry of the people that train together is vital to the success of the group. And, and I, there, you couldn't have put together a better group at that time with, with Ty and Chad and Jeff and, you know, eventually Kelly was there. Jillian was there. There were some other, there were some other girls there that at the very beginning, like uh, Kimmy Becker, I think was there just these kids that just w- loved pole vault. And I don't know if people are knocking on the door, but I knew, but I know that there were people that were doing what I was doing. Like I was working full time in South Dakota and I would get in a car on a Thursday night at like three in the afternoon after work. And I would drive till three o'clock in the morning. Then I would crash at Chad's house. I would jump Friday. Then I would rest Saturday, jump Sunday at like noon, get done by two, get in the car and drive back to Vermilion and get in about two or three o'clock in the morning and go to work the next day on Monday. And I did that probably two or at least probably once a month or so for about a year and a half. That's Um, insane. And that's, that's eventually how I learned enough to get close to 19 feet in 2001. Like I had qualified for the trials in 2000, jumping 60, I think, or maybe 65. And I tied my PR at the trials at 65 in 2000 and actually got in a jump off with Chad Harding and Pat Manson for the, for the Olympic spot. That was pretty fun. Wow. Uh, and then after that in 2001, I jumped 19 feet and I thought, okay, I'm, I think I'm going to commit full time to, to moving down there. Um, and I would do that. It was funny for the year and a half. I'm like, all right, if I jump 65, I'm going to move down there full time. Then I jump 65. I'm like, all right, well, if I jump 70, I'm really for sure going to move down. <laughs> and I jump 70. I'm like, okay, 80 for sure. If I jump 80, I'm moving. And then I jumped 80. I'm like, all right, I got to go. So yeah. after that, I, I actually applied for a job at Arkansas state and got it. So it was easy after that. I, I was able to kind of pay the bills and, and work on campus and, and still keep jumping. So, but That's it was a great insane. time. It was, it was a crazy group, super fun. That's how I got introduced to paragliding with Ty. I mean, it just the some of the best years of of my life were there. It was really where cool. does one go paragliding in uh, Jonesboro, Arkansas? So, <laughs> this is a good story. Okay, so 
Ty was this big paragliding pilot. I mean, he flew quite a bit before, and this was fairly young. Paragliding, you know, really in the 90s was kind of experimental. So by the time we rolled around to the late 90s, 2000s, when I was, when I watched Ty doing it, um, it was still pretty experimental. And he's like, he went out and got like a hundred foot rope and he taught me a little bit. We kited a little bit. And, uh, and so Jeff Hart, we got on the end of one rope and Ty was about 10 feet in front of him on the rope. And I got faced into the wind and they started pulling. And if you pull a paraglider into the wind, you, you pick up lift, you know? Right. And I got about, I don't know, 50 feet, 60 feet, you know, and I'm just loving it. I'm cranking on these things. I don't know what the heck I'm doing. <laughs> And he's like, right, break, right, break. And the, and the, the wing started to turn left. And, and if, you, if you're in a paraglider and you start to go with the wind, a paraglider flies about 20 miles an hour. And if you go with the wind, whatever the wind's going, you add that onto it, right? Oh, so if wow. the wind's blowing 10 miles an hour and you turn and go with it, you're going to go 30 miles an hour. So I ended up turning this way and caught a little bit of that wind and just went down like a bag of rocks and smashed into the ground. I mean, I had these lines buried. He was saying right break and I was just flipping out doing this kind of thing, you know? And I land hard on the ground. I mean, I bounced off the ground. And and the first thing I had my teeth redone back then. So I was like checking my teeth. (laughs) Ty comes running up and he's like, dude, are you okay? Are you all right? And I'm I'm like, yeah, I'm money. I'm good. And I I looked back about 40 feet and Hartwig has lost it. He's dying laughing. He can't stop. He's just back there crying, laughing so hard. And Ty would look back and see him laughing. So then he would laugh. And then he'd look down at me and see all the blood on my arms. He goes, oh, my God, dude. Are you? And he'd, he'd go back to being serious. Are you okay? Are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm good. And then he'd look back at Hartwig and he'd die laughing because Hartwig never stopped laughing the whole time. He was just, got, he was just dying. And that was my first real experience probably in, gosh, 99, 98, something like that with paragliding. And then after that, when I moved down there, we, we would tow up, we, we put a line on his car, like a 2000 foot rope and hook it to his car and have someone drive the car and pull us up. And then we would detach and just fly around. And yeah. What was, the heck? See, fun. like as an outsider, uh, you know, being a fan of basically everybody vaulting at Bell Athletics during that time, that's what I'm hoping you guys were doing, man. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like in my head, I'm like, I'd. I, they seem like, you know, cause I used to go, I, I qualified for, uh, the junior championships, uh, yeah. in Carson, California, and then one in Indianapolis. And, and, uh, so I'd get to watch you guys jump and I, yeah. and I, I followed you guys a, a lot and me and my brothers did. And, and, uh, and I would always think to myself, they look like really cool people. They look like they are having a really good time down there yeah. in Jonesboro. Yeah. I had no idea that you guys were paragliding around getting yeah. pulled by by a car yeah, that that's crazy we, we had these headsets you know today you could just do bluetooth or something like that on your phone it'd be way easier but we had like a walkie-talkie with with a with a mic that came down and literally the person would would be driving his car and he would say go slower go faster go slower 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 fast faster you know what i mean we're just like communicating through this thing and then finally when you get up high enough where you feel like you're in a good spot you can pull this harness link that we made we sewed it together like ty would sew them together and that's what we would hook onto the rope and then it had a release uh a release kind of um string that we would pull on it and would detach you from the rope so you can you can fly off but yeah we were just pulling each other up by cars and having a blast so is that what you're doing on your saturday rest day uh well i was until some point we were flying this one little rock query and I was flying along this ridge and I lost altitude, but I was still moving really fast. And there was this huge, um, rusty, like water trench. It was about four feet tall. 
and I was flying right for it. And, and I, right at the last minute, I kind of picked my feet up and, and it scraped my butt. You know what I mean? Like it, Ooh, it really banged yeah. my butt, but it didn't hit my legs. And that was about three weeks before the Olympic trials in 2000. And I'm like, ah, I better, I better cool it. Cause I just about ate it on that one. I better cool this for a little bit. And so I didn't yeah. do it for a long time. I didn't do it probably for gosh, 12 years after that, maybe or so. And That's crazy. I, now I fly all the time. Now I'm just, I'm, I'm you back. still, you still do it now. Oh, I'm hot and heavy on it now. Yeah. I'm no like, way. I'm, like, yeah. I went out to Utah, U, or Utah and I got P3 certified. Uh, when we were at the Olympic trials, in between the girls vault and the guys vault, I went out to Pine Mountain in, in Oregon and flew off that mountain, flew for about two hours one day. What and then the, the next day I went out to the coast the day before Chris started, I think I flew out to the coast and flew the sand dunes out there in uh, Tillamook out in Oregon. So I, that I took is it with so me. cool. Yeah, so a cool. paraglider does not have an engine or anything. No, well, it can. You can strap a, a paramotor to your back, but it's loud. It's this big propeller, and I'm not. Yeah. I'm not super into that. It's probably what I should be doing in South Dakota because it's pretty flat. But right. like the idea of of catching wind currents, you know, um, or like if you fly off a cliff and the wind's going into the cliff, it creates a draft, an upward lift, and uh -huh. you can fly on that upward lift for a while. So there's a spot about 45 minutes from me in a Minnesota state park that, that I can usually fly up the winds going the right direction, but yeah, wow. it's all, it's all wind related. So if you have wind moving at you, um, then you can inflate it and you can kind of run off a mountain, but, um, without any like thermals <laughs> or lift. <laughs> yeah. Without Super casual. Thermals, you know, you know, but it's a blast, man. I've, I've been hooked ever since I got back into it. And I, I got, Ty Harvey yeah. got you into that? Yeah, I was hooked as soon as I ate ate it on the ground that one day. You know, it was just so much fun to be up in the air. And and I've always oh, had a thing for flying. I don't think that was my pole vaulting. I had nothing with pole vaulting. I just love the idea of flying, you know. And when this paragliding thing came along, it was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. So Tito – and I'm, I, I'm trying to get Tito back into it. You know, he's busy with life these days, but I goose him every now and then. I send him a picture of me flying. I'm like, dude, come on, let's go to Utah. Let's go somewhere. Let's go flying. And I just <laughs> egg him on. So I'm sure Amy's going to be mad at me that I'm egging him on all the time about getting a wing, but uh, right, right. That's just too much fun. Yeah. That's wild, man. That's crazy. Yeah. All right. I have a question for you. Sure. Will there ever be, uh, another training group like that in the States? Boy. I mean, let's, let's just, let's go through. Okay. So it was you, it was Hartwig, it was, um, Ty, yep. it was Chad Harding. Yeah. Um, the but then you had, guy. yeah, the Turkish guy, but then you had guys that came in. I mean, I remember you Kim coming in at some point when he was like in high school, he was coming through, like he was flying over from, from Asia to live in the building for like months at a time to train. And wow. Daniel Ryland was in college at the time. Daniel Ryland. And, yep. I mean, he was, he was this sprinter. I mean, he had this big old long flowing hair and in, in college and, but he was running super fast and he was getting into the pole vault. Um, and it just the kept other, coming, you know, and the like other, uh, later. big one, the other big one, literally the big one, uh, Jeremy Scott, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. cause he's still down there, I think. Yep. And yep. he still, I think maybe works with he's, them or whatever. And he's going to be, a, he's, he's, uh, he just got placed, um, in orthopedic medicine. He got through med school. Oh, so wow. He's through med school. And now he's doing his residency, I think in Tulsa, maybe, or somewhere like that. I can't remember. Gotcha. Yeah. He's 
knee deep in uh, fixing the world now. So interesting, but that's but, I mean, just that, the guys' that's just side. The guys. Yeah, that's just right. the guys' side. Then you yeah. had Jillian Schwartz. You had Kelly Subtle. Yeah. Um, I mean, and and for those of you who don't know, like all those guys that we mentioned were five eighty plus yeah. guys, basically. Yeah. But they weren't when they came in. That's the crazy thing. I, right. I think Ty might have been the best vaulter coming in. I think I remember him jumping like 55 or something like that for the University of Minnesota before he came in. But Chad Harding, well, you know, he was a 35 guy out of out of college, I think. Hartwig was. I was. And I was a 50 guy when I, I mean, but like it, it just, it's crazy. Earl was able to just take these guys and and develop them. And I don't know how much of it was culture, how much of it was just late blooming athletics or how much of it was just Earl. You know what I mean? I'm sure a good 95% of it was Earl, if not 99% of it. Right. Um, but I mean, just the, the whole group. And there were always people that came in. I mean, um, just guys that, that would travel in that were 50, 60 guys that would come in and train from time to time. Um, it was just nuts. It was a crazy time. And I don't know. I mean, I, I, I to have that many people, that many, yeah. that many people yeah. training in one group, yeah. At one facility, I I don't know if that's ever going to happen again. And I think the reason it may not is because the convenience of the situations that are now. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think you know you have colleges back then. I don't think that were super keen on post collegiates. You know, I think they were more focused on. I remember Texas being one of those spots. Like Amy graduated there, but they didn't want her being there post collegiate. And I think wow it took a while for them to get into the spot where they warm up and let them train there. And it's obviously gotten better now, but it, there was a period of time where these universities were just focused on what they're doing and not worrying about post collegians. So there wasn't the opportunities. And now it's the convenience of saying, Hey, I can still work with my college coach who knows me and, and it works and it's, and it's great. And I don't have to pack up all my stuff and, and leave and all that kind of stuff, which I think there's some value in that. But also, I mean, if I hadn't been pushed to go down there, I can't think of the things that I would have given up, the things that I wouldn't have experienced, you know, right. that, that were so pivotal in, in me being able to not only develop, but have a, an amazing experience. I think that was, that was the thing, you know? Yeah. And I still don't think that colleges are too keen on it. I mean, it's basically kind of like you got, I mean, there's a few niche spots like yours, yeah, South Dakota, yeah. like you guys helped Emily and, and, and yeah. Chris obviously. And, uh, and, you know, other people are, I'm assuming they're allowed to still, you know, kind of use your facilities and things like yeah. that. But like, usually the route out of college is like, okay, if you're going to be a GA here, you can keep vaulting. But if you're not going to be a GA here, you know, you kind of got to, and then you're left to, you know, find a pole series and, yeah. and, and you gotta, you gotta do all of those things. So I think I, I, you know, you can't, I don't know if you can really bank on that when you're choosing your college. Like, I don't know if you can like bank on like, if I make it to a certain level, will I be able to train here afterwards? Sure. You know, and it's, I mean, maybe in the sprints, you know, sprints, yeah. you know, not too much liability there, you know, right. not too much equipment that they have to use and things like that. Right. But pole vaulting is just tough, man. It's, it's, it's really difficult. It is hard. And I think one of the reasons it's hard for, for, for universities to see the value in it is because they, they're, they're paying coaches to coach the kids, you know, mm. and if you look at my kids in my program, now they've made choices to leave their home countries, their home state, whatever the case is. And when they come to USD, they deserve to have 
the Emily, the Chris experience. And once you've graduated, you've, you've kind of had your time. And so now it gets focused on the next, we're, we're passing it down, we're paying it forward kind of a thing, so to speak. So it doesn't mean that I drop the post-collegiates, but obviously when you graduate, you, you take on a little bit of autonomy, you take on a little bit of uh, upperclassmen or veteranism, I guess you would call it. But the, the way I look at it is for every minute or every hour they pull me away from the kids that I'm coaching, if I have to do a session with them or something like that, then they pay that hour back to the program somehow, some way. Oh, cool. So like, That's awesome. If, if they, and we're not punching a clock here by any means, but <laughs> right. like our conference meet, Chris and Emily worked their butts off on the multi-event pole vault, the girls pole vault, the guys pole vault. I mean, they were putting the bar up in meets before that, even not at our conference meet, our home meets, they were putting the bar up. So you got Chris and Emily, you know, world championship team members putting the bar up at 10 feet for a high school, you know, a college women's pole vault that have 30 competitors in it. And we go for three and a half hours, you know, and I think that's kind of what I want. I want them to feel like, okay, I'm, I'm giving back to the people that, that are now coming up behind me and, and still being a part of the program, you know, and I think that's kind of, if you can contribute to the greater good of everything, then it goes back to that Bell Athletics theory. Everybody just gets better. You know what I mean? And yeah, that's, that's a very good point. And I, I think that's, uh, you know, I, it's really, really cool, uh, you know, that, that you give them that opportunity, but, uh, you know, that they're doing it too. You know, you got two, like you said, like two world championship and now, you know, silver medalist, you know, that's, you know, working the, working the conference. Well, we have have some more kids, you know, I, I just graduated my Italian girl, Helen, who's trying to kind of get her stuff going for, for Italy. And she's a, She's like a 440, 445 girl, um, but she's coming back and wants to train post-collegiate. Ethan Bray, who was at the Olympic trials, he's a 65 guy. I think he can jump 70 or 80. Um, so there's about four of them now. And I think the director of our program says, well, how do we make sure that, that you know, we're still paying enough attention to the sixth girl I have on my team, you know? And that girl is just as important to me as the number one girl. So I yeah. see his side of it. And I think they understand that we have that conversation saying, Hey, I gotta, I gotta make sure I take care of my kids first. And then if I have to, you know, come out and watch sprint girls at five 30 in the afternoon, then that's when I'll do it. Or if it has to be at 10 in the morning, then we'll get together and we'll do it 10 in the morning or whatever my break in my schedule is. But I do want to make sure I'm fair to those guys too. I, I, they're, they're made, they're laying, they're delaying life. They're, they're putting all their marbles into this basket. Like I did. Um, mm-hmm. and they deserve, um, the best I can give them if they're going to stay here. So I'm going to try to make sure I live up to that too. So. Yeah. Along those, uh, post-collegiate, uh, kind of lines was there a dark time that you can remember in your career? I know that I dealt with, uh, some dark times, some stagnant times where I was like, what the heck am I doing, man? Like, oh, yeah. this is like, I'm a, I'm jumping 5:35 at every meet, you know, like, and it's like, yeah. am I ever going to like, quote unquote, break through? Yeah. Um, was there a dark time, like specifically that you could remember? Uh, 96 to 99. Um, with the exception in, in 97, I did pop that 50, but I spent the majority of the time at 30, um, 20, 30, trying to get to a U.S. champ. That was my only goal. My goal was just to make it to a U.S. championships. That was going to be cool. And for two years, I just kept struggling and kept struggling and couldn't figure it out. And just, you know, trying to do what I'd always been doing and, and jump higher. And it just, 
I, I it's laughable. I wrote my night. I wrote my master's thesis when I graduated in 98 on the women's pole vault because it was fairly new at the time. So I thought when I'm my grad school, I write my thesis on women's pole vault. And if I had a match, I'd go in the library, find it and burn it. Cause it's bad. You know what I mean? Oh, like boy. just a, just years of in the sport and learning so much more. It just, it's crazy how much I've learned since I was that grad student writing this, you know, 85 page thesis paper on pole, women's pole vaulting, you know? Right. And I think that's the cool part about pole vaulting is just you, you're constantly moving forward, even when you're not jumping higher. And I think that's where I was for two years is it just wasn't jumping a lot higher or jumping really any higher, but I still was trying to figure things out, trying to put the puzzle together. And then when I finally started going down to Earl's, uh, he just had a way of, of teaching that was very sim- simplistic. And I think that was what I needed. I needed somebody to teach me what I was missing and um, me personally, but then also learning so much about because all the guys there jump so different. Hartwig and I had very different jump styles. Chad had a different jump style. Tito has a different jump style. I mean, it was like to to get four people together with completely different jump styles and have them all jump over 19 feet, to me is kind of the benchmark of of when you've got a coach that that you can't you can't match anywhere. You know what I mean? And it's very rare that you you experience that. Um, back in the day, Parnoff had Hooker and Burgess at the same camp and they were two very different styles of jumping, both jumping six meters. So I thought, well, Parnoff's probably got something figured out because these two cats are completely different and still jumping high. And I think right. that's kind of how I started learning is just by sitting in on other jump sessions with Ty and Chad and Jeff, like, well, shoot, if Jeff's jumping six meters, why am I not just doing what Jeff's doing? You know what I mean? Cause that would make sense. He's, he's successful. If, if Earl tells him to do something, I should just do that. And then in my jump session with Earl would be very different stuff. We're queuing. And I'm like, it took me time to figure out like, okay, we're, we're different. You know what I mean? We're, we're different guys, different strengths, different weaknesses. And we have to figure out kind of what's going to work for us and and kind of start working on those weaknesses. You know, do you think that that's where a lot of coaches miss the mark is, uh, is there was a time there was, it's actually kind of similar in that, that same time period where that beginner to Boopka book came out and, uh, you know, all these different coaching materials started to become more readily available and, yeah. and I, and coaches started to be like, if you don't keep, this is just a random example. Sure. If you don't, this was one we dealt with. If you don't have a free takeoff, yeah. then you are not going to be able to pull yeah. ball high. Yeah. And, or, or if you're, you know, in your example, uh, I'm, remembering your vault in my head right now from all the neo vaults i used to it was it was ugly you know well no it wasn't ugly it was not (laughs) ugly it was really cool i liked your style um uh if you don't keep your trail leg straight to a certain point then you're not going to be able to pull vault high right if you don't if you don't have a straight trail leg like maxim tarasov then you're not going to pull vault high and do you think that that's where a lot of coaches miss the mark well i don't even possibly. I think I did the exact thing you're talking about. I'm like, man, I got to swing better. I got to get on this swing. I got to keep this leg long. And the longer I kept it, the harder it was to come around on it. I just couldn't catch it. Mm-hmm. And I was terrible in gymnastics. I never did. I never really did much gymnastics. I did later on, you know, some, you know, I wouldn't call it gymnastics, but giants and clear hip to hand stands and stuff like that. But I just was, I didn't have the type of strengths in a, in a sport fluid swing kind of thing. That was never going to be my thing. My thing was going to be knock the piss out of the thing and catch it, try to catch as much as you can. 
Mm-hmm. And although I did work on the swing, it just seemed like the more I tried to make the swing look like Bubka or all the people that jumped high, it didn't really work. And then I see Stu come in there and tuck in there a little bit and go and still jump six meters. I'm like, well, wait a minute now. There's yeah. another thing. And I think that's what we did. We all lived in the era of Bubka where it was like he just dominated for so long. And we all thought, well, this is the guy. This is the way everybody has to look. And then all of a sudden, recently, we've been challenged by that. When the world record got broke a few times, it's like, wait a minute, those are different jump styles. So maybe mm-hmm. there are different ways to jump high. And I think the, the coaches that recognized that were the guys that were successful or are successful, I think, even in today's day and age. Because last year, I had a girl that came in as a freshman, and I, and I always have this kind of concept of where I want to go and what I want it to look like. And the more I did that with her, the more I jacked her up. <laughs> so at some point, I would be coaching her, and I would say something from one girl coming off the pit that was my typical thing. And then she would come off the pit and it would be everything I've ever told somebody not to do. I would be telling her to do. And it just, because I knew it was going to work for her jump at the time until I could kind of bridge the gap between the two jumps. And eventually it came around and she was able still to do the things that I want her to do, but I was able to bridge the gap and keep her moving forward by going back to some of the things that she, that made her successful that didn't really look like what I wanted her to look like. And I think right. that's where I, it challenged me. Like, I got to get out of the idea that it has to look like this. You know, I always knew in coaching that I didn't want to coach people to jump like I did. Uh, my, I just never really enjoyed my technique. My technique was pretty struggling, but I would just come down there and knock the thing as hard you as had I could. A plant, man. You well, had that was the thing. Plant. That was <laughs> Earl knew that was my strength. You know, he knew that I could hit it hard and I can grip, you know, close to 17 feet. So it was like, let's use that strength and then let's figure out how we can catch it better. And it wasn't until 2008 where I really figured out how to catch it and, and get some lift out of it. But um, I still think that that's where Earl was good is that he could recognize that people had different strengths and weaknesses and it didn't have to look a certain way, which I would think would have been tough in his situation because you had a six meter guy. If you have a six meter guy there, you would think, well, shoot, that works pretty well. Let's try the same thing with the other guy. And he, I don't think he really ever got to that. I think it was like, well, let me look at your jump. Let me get to know you. Let me figure out what your personality is and, and you know, what your mindset is when you pole vault and understand that person enough to, to then put all the pieces of the puzzle together. And I think that's sometimes what we miss as coaches is we we just look at the technical side and we don't take in the whole picture, you know, and you, you understand what makes this athlete tick. Do they need a kick in the butt? Do they need a hug? Do they need this technical thing? Do they need a complete opposite? What's going to make them feel comfortable to get their confidence up to then change the technique? I mean, I just, those are so many facets that I think he had had figured out, you know? Yeah, I think, I think you're right on. And, and we, I own a, a pole vaulting gym and we, um, you know, work with tons and tons of different pole vaulters, like all sure. types of like yeah. different vaulters. And, and I always, uh, you know, kids will come up and they'll be like, well, you know, I'll be like, Oh my gosh, you know, that was awesome. That was so good. And they'll be like, well, my trail leg wasn't straight. Yeah, and I'll be yeah, like, yeah. I'll be, and I'll be thinking in my head, your trail legs probably never going to be straight. I don't say that to them, yeah. but I'm like, I'm like, if you would just let, let, let me yeah. do, do what I do. And, and I, I can look at you after a few jumps and I can tell what kind of jumper you're going to, yeah. what's, what's probably going to help you to reach your 
the best you know you could be. Um, uh, but some people get fixated on that. And some people get fixated on like, well, I, I want to have a straight trail leg. Okay. Well, do you want to have a straight trail leg? If you want it bad enough, we can do it, but you, you might jump a foot lower. Yeah. Like, are you cool with that? Yeah. Because if you're yeah. cool with that, we'll, we'll go with the straight trail yeah. leg. <laughs> you'll but, look really cool, but you'll jump lower. Right. <laughs> right. And I think at the end of the day, yeah, I, I think you're, you're spot on too with like, you know, how Renault, you know, broke the world record. It was like, whoa, that's yeah. way off the mark. Yeah. If you were to like analyze yeah. that from a technical yeah, standpoint. Yeah, now we need now we all need to jump fifty take a take off at 15 feet now, right? That's the way to jump high. To exactly. Take yeah. Off at 15 feet, right? It's yeah. a good way to miss yeah. the pit. Right, um right. but but yeah, so that's uh that's really, really interesting. So you you said you went through that dark time and um you went through a dry spell. So I remember, I remember leaving my shoes on the rail at Drake Reedy, Reedy, at Drake Stadium one time, leaving a meet going, I'm done. And I left my shoes hanging on the rail out there, like as my symbolic retirement kind of message oh boy. to everybody. <laughs> I mean, and we and I we left. We left my shoes out there and I'm like, I'm done. I'm done. Who's got and, those shoes? Uh, that that would I'm be sure awesome. The threw them in the garbage <laughs> after that. So. Yeah. So so I, I guess I'm curious about like I mean, it's a common theme. Do you think dry spells are a part of it if you stay in it long enough? Do you think you're eventually just going to have, you're going to be challenged with that? Yes, absolutely. I think that's probably more the norm. You know, you're going to have people that, that like Mondo, who just never seem to miss, never seem to be off. And every year it just gets better and better. And Chris was that way too. Chris just seemed to get better every single year. Um, but I don't think that's the norm. You know, I think yeah. that's the, that's kind of, we, we look at those people as, oh, that's the way it should be. And if I'm not on that path, then I'm missing the boat, but it's, it's, it's the one person that wins the lottery. You know what I mean? And that's why we all play the lottery. Cause we think, well, the next time I'm playing, I'm going to win. And I think it's more the idea you got to lose for five years before you even win $20 on the stupid lottery ticket, you know? <laughs> and I think that's kind of the way this is. And I think that's what sport is. I, you never learn. Well, I shouldn't say you never, but you, you very rarely learn from really great experiences. You mm. learn from the miserable ones, the ones mm. that you come back and you say, oh man, this hurts. This sucks. I, I got to figure out what happened, what went wrong and how to never have that happen again. And it process, it forces you to process things in a way where a victory or a PR doesn't. You just leave the track smiling, happy and going out with friends and, and you just rejoice in the idea that you jumped higher but you don't have the diagnostic thought that takes place after a poor performance. And I think those are vital. And that's why we see those kinds of things. You know, you kind of plateau and it's like, man, I got to figure out what's going on here. I got to stay and it's going to try, it's going to test my resolve. Mm -hmm. And if at some point, if I want it bad enough and I keep trying to keep trying, I'm going to figure out something out and bam, I'm going to hit a little spike and then I'm going to keep doing that. And I think that's the, that's the way probably Hartwig and my schedule or my careers and, and a lot of other people's careers have been. It's like, you just keep swinging, you keep trying and bring and you, then you try it a little bit more and bam, and you just kind of plug away. And it, it doesn't say that the next increment up happens in a month. <laughs> it might be two years. You know right. I mean? Right. And I think that's an important thing for young vaulters to learn too, is that, you know, when you're going from zero to 12, yeah. it's going to be, you know, you're going to be yeah. shooting up like a rocket ship, man. Yeah. Like it's going to yeah. be awesome. And then you're going to yeah. go from 12 to 15 and that's going to be, I'm talking about a, a male vaulter, you know, yeah. you go 12 to 15 and then you're like, 
that one was a little harder, you know, and then you're going to go from 15 to 17 and you're going to be like, there were some rocky stinking patches in there. And then if you make it past that, you know, I, I went through a two, a two year spell of, of, of no PRs. And, uh, you know, I work with people that, uh, they're like, well, I haven't PR in two months. And I'm like, goodness gracious, like, holy cow, man. Like, Should I run you over with my car now or tomorrow? <laughs> you want, you know? Yeah. I, anyway, yeah. So I think that's the thing, though. I think that's the thing that, that as coaches, what, we, what I try to do is, is you got to teach patience. You got to teach this as a marathon, not a sprint. Mm. And, and to think that it's anything otherwise will drive you nuts. You know what I mean? If you think this is just going to pop off and you're going to. And, and I think that's just the world we live in these days. You know, it's kind of this idea that anything is possible if you want it bad enough and, and you believe in it. And okay, I, I do and I want it bad, but I'm looking at my watch. So it's got to hit any day now, you know, and it's just, we got to have that drive, but we got to have the balance of patience on that side. It's goals are great. Patience on the other side, put them together. Then you got something. You know? Exactly. And I think that that patience part, uh, when you're going through that dry spell or that rocky time where it's like, man, I don't know, am I improving? Am I getting worse? What's going on here? Right. Um, I think it's important to, uh, number one, have good guidance, you know, like a guy who's been through it, like somebody who's been through it, uh, really, really helps, but not showing up to every single practice thinking that today is the day that I'm breaking out today's the day I'm breaking out of this dry spell. You know, that is a trap that is, uh, is, is very tough because it'll, it can get very mentally exhausting. You know, it's like, no, today's the day coach. Today's the day. It's like, gosh, man, it's probably be like six months from now or a year. You know, (laughs) I think it's interesting because the days that I felt my worst are the days, the two days I jumped my PR. Um, I remember one of them was in Donetsk. I had traveled for, I don't know how many hours, like 48 hours. Poles got lost along the way, just horrid travel, got in there, didn't feel all that great and managed to sneak around 85. And then that was Oh five, maybe I can't remember. I think Oh five. I didn't jump 85 again until Oh eight. And oh, that geez. was three years. And so I spent you know, three years chasing 86 or 87 or 90 or something and it and just never got it but i kept swinging and the next time i jumped 85 was in berlin and i felt terrible i'm like oh god i just i'm tired i'm spent i'm just i don't know this is gonna be bad so i opened at 20 just to make an appearance fee and get over a bar and then i just kind of slowly got rolling and eventually jumped 85 on that day and it's funny how like the days that you, you do well, you, sometimes you, you just take the monkey off your back. You say, I don't know if today's the day, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to go hard and be aggressive and see what happens. And all of a sudden that weight just get lift, gets lifted off your shoulders and you can kind of go out and execute and just do what you're ready to do without putting the pressure on yourself. And I know right. through my world championships and some of those meets, the more times I felt like this is it, I'm ready. This is going to go. I had the worst experiences, you know, my worst performances. The times I said, I'm just going to go in there and I'm just going to knock the heck out of it. I'm going to, I'm going to go hard every single jump and whatever happens happens. We're always my best performances. Now that's me. You know what I mean? That's just my, what worked for me. I'm not saying that works for everybody, but I just learned that about myself from a competitive perspective, that that was going to be a better situation for me than, than watching the pot. You know, which goes back to the patience thing, you know? No. And I think that that's one, I think, I think there in my career, uh, it, it was always, uh, as soon as I let go of it, as soon as I just let go, just yeah. like, you know what, man, yep. you're putting in the work, just let it go, man. Yeah. 
if, if it's yeah. meant to happen, it'll happen. As soon as yeah. you let that go, it's like something clicks. Yeah. And you, you're like, how the heck did I get over that? Yeah. What yeah. the heck happened? You know, like, and it's Got because, yeah. like you said, you took the monkey off your back. Yeah. Um, so you made three Olympic teams, correct? Yep. yep. That's well, I call ins- it two and a half because 2012 was pretty rough. <laughs> hey. 2012 was, I was, my Achilles was barely, barely hanging on and I got down the runway a few times, but it wasn't, I wasn't really in the meat. So, well, you made three Olympic teams, which is insane. Uh, and I think it's insane that, you know, to, to jump at a high level and make an Olympic team is that in itself is incredible. Okay. You know, to the, to the common folk. Um, but to me, the more impressive thing is the fact that that's, Spanned over 12 years, <laughs> like, like, like the fact that you were training for one Olympics and then you made that one and then four more years went by and then you made that one and then four more years went by and then you made that one. So that's the part to me that's like super, super impressive. And it makes me wonder how, how did you keep your body together and how did you, how did you you know, I'm sure there were rough patches in there too, yeah, but I guess mainly, you know, how, how does, how did you keep your body together and jump as late as you did? Like, was there, did you, is it not overtraining? Is it, you know, just a combination of a few things? Um, I think, I think training's balance, you know, I think y- you have to balance everything and, and learning that along the way is, is a key to, to being able to do that, you know, knowing how much you can do and when you, when you should do it and when you shouldn't. Um, and it sometimes you trial by error. And I had some patches there. I think, um, going into the Oh four trials, I remember having a problem with, um, a hamstring and, and that before that, which actually the, the interesting thing about Oh four was that, when I came out, I actually ended up having a day where I was really starting to click. I jumped 70 from 10 steps, five laps. Wow. And my PR from before that was like 50 from 10. And I just went out there one day and I was running really well. And I, and I hit 50, I hit 55, I hit 60, I hit 65, and I ended up jumping 70. And I'm like, holy cow, if I can jump 70 from five laps, I think I'm figuring something out. So the next week I come back out and I move back to 12. And I jumped 71 or 72 and was taking, and I was taking shots at 80. And at that point I started to feel like my, my, my hip flexor start to get real tight. And then after that, after my hip flexor got tight, like I kept jumping, kept training a little bit and I didn't know that limit. And then bam, it shut me down on my hamstring and I was out for the rest of the year, or at least for a good chunk of the year before it came back around before the trials. So I remember oh, wow. before the trials in 04, I hadn't jumped very much. Um, it was just trying to get healthy and, and, but I mean, there were multiple times in my, I've got a rod in my leg from a stress fracture. I had an uh, intermediary, intermediary rod put in and that was in 06. So I sat most of 07, um, trying to just wow. get ready, um, for 08. And that was a whole long process. That was about a year long process, year and a half process. What, what part of your leg? So the tibia, um, had a stress fracture in it. It's like and, the ultimate shin splint. Yeah, right. It just, I did a lot of plyos in January of, uh, 06. And this is funny because I had just resigned my job at Arkansas state like three months before that. I'm like, oh, I'm doing, I'm starting to figure this out. I just got my, I got seventh at the Olympics. T- Tim and Toby are doing this full time and they're kicking my butt. 
I got to get rid of my job. I got to go full time. So I quit my job. And three months later, I got a stress fracture and I'm oh. out. And so, but I mean, it was kind of like, I just, I got out of the job and I just went nuts and I started training, you know, and it just was too much. So I spent most of the year in 06 with a stress fracture, jumping the indoor season in a stress fracture. That was hard. And then I laid off it for outdoor and then came to the U.S. champs in 05, barely jumped, barely trained. And I was terrible there. And then I waited all the way through the rest of 06 and like gave, took time off. And by the time November came around, it still wasn't healed. So December of 06, I had surgery and I did it down in Alabama with Doc Andrews and his group. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. McBride's a foot specialist. So he did the surgery and they jammed a rod in there and put some screws in it. And then that took me all the way through till probably August of 07, where I finally jumped like 70 or 75 at the Olympic Training Center at the end of the summer. And then wow. I just went back into a fall training for 08 and 08. I came back around and 08 was my best year. So I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but um, just, yeah, you have things like that in your career. You have things that are small that nag for a month and you have things that knock you out for a year. And it's just, it, it goes back to your your diligence. It goes back to your patience. It goes back to your commitment. And it's the, the good things are never going to be easy. You know, right. it's, the easy road is to say, man, I, I'm, 35 and I'm coming off a a surgery that took me out for a year. Is this really going to work? You know? And the only way you find out is if you, you go after it. And so that's what I did is I'm going to go find out. Did your age ever like get in your head? Like at that point surgery? Yeah. After that surgery, I'm like, man, I'm 35 and I know I'm a late bloomer here, but like, what if I can't run as fast as I used to? What if I, you know, fell on the backside of the hill here and right. And I think it goes, you just, those are the things that you just don't know unless you try, you know? And, and the question is, are you trying at a hundred percent? Are you just trying to see what happens? And I think that sometimes gets kids I see in injuries and in, in different situations, whether it's collegiate or post-collegiate, I just feel like there's, there's an intent to what you're doing. There's a belief in what you're doing. And sometimes that two or 3% difference between a workout that you're just doing because you feel like you need to do it versus I'm all in and I know this is going to make me better and I'm going to come back out of this. Sometimes that 2% can make all the difference in the world. And if you stack up 2% over time, over day after day after day, you're going to come away with a significantly different situation. You know what I mean? That's a really, really good way of putting it. And, uh, and that's, if there's one message from this podcast, just little increments of improvement, like little increments of improvement. That is, that's where it's at. Um, so have you ever, did you ever like find any like magic way of like being able to decipher this is an injury that I got to take some time with, and this is an injury that I can train through? Yeah, that's a good question. I usually found like eight out of 10 times I would I would make it through it, you know, and be like, oh, it's just nagging and it goes away, which is what always screwed me over for the two times out of 10 that it wasn't, <laughs> you know what I mean? I think that's just the way it works. You know, you, you struggle with that stuff and, and it always comes around. And then all of a sudden, the one time it doesn't come around, you know? Right. It, well, I mean, that's, the, I mean, the balance in that is so difficult because yeah. on one end of the spectrum, uh, you can't take off three weeks every time something bothers you, you know, or else you're just never going to get anywhere. But at the same time, uh, you really have to understand your body and pay attention to what, you know, is going to potentially be 
one of those big dogs, yeah. like the the year long one or something yeah. like that. It's uh, I, and I think with age, you just get better at that too. Yeah. Uh, the more the more that you are in athletics, and the more you pole vault, the more you understand. Like, okay, this is the number of jumps that I can take in a workout. Yeah. This is yeah. you know, and that's another thing too with some of these guys these days. Uh, the really good guys, it's like, oh well, he took thirty jumps in the workout. Right. Like yeah. I want, I watched Renault at Reno. Uh, I forget what year it was. It was right before he broke the world record. I saw him uh, the day before the elite vault at Reno. And I was like, yep, he's breaking the world record. Yeah. I, I mean, he was just out there. I mean, he took like 20 jumps. I know. And, and I, then the next day he came out and, you know, I forget what he jumped, maybe like 90, 80 or 90 or something. That's like, well, that works for him. I know. If I were to it's, take 20 jumps before day before, I'd be roasted. It's crazy because it's not even the, sometimes the things that make sense. Like I, I'll tell you a quick story. I remember one time, I don't remember what year it was. I'd have to go back and think, but I remember I woke up with a neck kink, like right in the corner of my neck and it was a little bit sore, but how many times in a given year do you have neck kinks? You wake up with a neck kink, right? So I'm washing my hair, right? And I'm doing like my washing the hair thing. And all of a sudden it just tightens up and it goes, oh, and it's bad. And I'm like, oh, this sucks. So I went out and, you know, went through my work day or whatever. And I went and did some training and I could barely jog. It was like someone was stabbing a knife in my back. Right. And I'm like, oh, it's a neck kink. And I got Prefontaine coming up this weekend. And I'm thinking, wow, I hope this gets better. I can't do much up until that time, but I'll just try to get this thing loosened up and, and get it moving. So I go to Prefontaine and it's sore, but I'm just going to work. I'm, I'm just, I'm like, screw it. It's, it's pre, I got to jump well. And I jump 80 and, and I come back and I fly home and it's still sore, but it's not as bad as it was on day one. And I fly home and I'm taking the poles off my car and I go to, to like grab them off my, my car, the roof of my car. And my right arm just goes like that. And oh, I'm no. like, okay. So I tried to pick it up and I couldn't literally lift my right arm. Like it literally wouldn't lift. It wouldn't move up. And I'm like, Jeez. Oh, something's wrong here. And so I finally, you know, pull them off with my other hand and I go days where I can't like, I can't even like wash my body. I can't pick my arm up to wash my body after just jumping 80. And so I'm like, okay, this is bad. So I go to the doctor. I see a chiropractor. I see a doctor. This doc wants to do a spinal tap. He thinks it's the onset of MS. Uh, Another doc, I went down to Alabama and he's like, oh, it's this rare thing. I've seen only one time in 25 years. And I even went out to California to Amy Acuff do like suctioning and the acupuncture and stuff. And literally I went months where nothing got better and I couldn't find one doctor that would tell me the same thing over a five month period. Everybody had a completely different opinion. The only thing I knew is that I did a a nerve conductivity study and where they send electrical pulses down through different nerves and they see, they measure it when it goes and then where it ends and see if it's going all the way through. Mm. And I could tell that a couple nerves were like shut down. And I'm like, and I had MRIs and I'm like, it's got to be a pinched nerve, you know? And they're like, no, because the MRI shows clean and all this. So anyway, at some point after five, six months of this, I'm like, screw it. I picked up a bottle of water and I just started trying to go with a bottle of water, like a little 16 ounce bottle of water. And I'm just like, I'm just like cranking on it, trying to get it above my head. I did that for like a week. And then I grabbed a heavier bottle of water and finally a five pound thing. And then a seven pound thing and a 10 pound thing. And at some point, like I finally got my arms above my head and I went and I got back on jumping and I went, 
But it was what? a five or six month process. I even went down to Mexico. Doc Ongley was down in Mexico. He injected my spine with all kinds of stuff. I mean, it was just like looking what? under every rock trying to figure out how to get back on the circuit and go. And it's just like, screw it. I'm just going to pick up a bottle of water and start going to work. And eventually it came back around. But Isn't that strange? It's, it, the body's, in, this body's crazy, well, man. The moral of the story is like you can always be looking left, but sometimes the bus comes from the right. You know what I mean? Like you just right. never know when it's going to happen. And that's what, why it makes it, why pole vaulting is so darn hard. You just staying healthy is, is hard. And you can, you can look both ways till the cows come home and never cross the street. So at some yeah. point you got to kind of, you got to learn from things and you got to, you got to kind of move forward and learn your body and figure out what it's doing. And I think the more time you have doing that, the better off you get at it. You know what I mean? So do you, whenever I would have injuries, I would, uh, my head would just start to spiral like into like, well, this is going to end my season. This is going to, yeah. were you good at controlling that spiral effect? Um, I'll probably look back on it now and say, yeah, I probably was. But if you ask the people I was talking to, they're like, dude, you're a nut job. You know, whether it was my parents or my wife or my agent or whatever, or friends or training partners, I'm sure they, you know, heard me complain about all kinds of things. And and I'm sure that was just confidence. But I think the thing that always helped me is I always had an intensity switch. Like that was where I feel like my, my pole vaulting was rooted in. My pole vaulting was rooted in just whatever happens, just grip the thing and hit the, hit the piss out of the thing. You know what I mean? Mm. And I think if, if you always go a hundred percent, then it's, it's more consistent and you always know most of the time what you're going to get, you know what I mean? And right. so that was my mentality coming back from injuries. It was like, Nope, let's just get on here. We're going to figure it out. We're going to keep trucking. And every day I'm going to get better somehow, some way, or I'm going to try away. I'm going to find a way to get better. One of the two, you know? Yeah, it's I've said this a few times on the podcast, but I really uh like I enjoy proving this uh to be true. Brad on Brad's podcast, we talked about how he was like, you know, you can you can watch somebody's vault and you can know who they are. Like yeah. you can know their uh like their attitude and you can you can know you can find out so much about a person's personality by watching their vault and if you and whenever i was younger you know 13 years old i looked at you pole vault and i was like that guy's freaking aggressive man (laughs) and 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 it's so cool to to hear you confirm that and actually that was my next one of my uh things i wanted to ask you is what what is your greatest attribute like from as as an athlete like what if you were if you were to point to one thing like what are you the best at um i think probably what what my pole vaulting was rooted in was the ability to to for lack of a better word call have blow down the runway like i i had um enough plyometric ability to strike the ground and put some stride length on my stuff. I was never very fast. I would never had very, very good turnover. I was never super strong in the weight room. I was a terrible pole vaulter, but I could, I could bring some power down the runway and just put all that power into the takeoff, like just knock the kick, knock the heck out of the thing. And Earl got me into the right position to be able to use that. And I think that was the thing, my ability to run. And I think later on in my career, like when my Achilles went bad and things like that, that's the thing that I lost. I lost mm. the, the blow because I couldn't strike the ground really hard and I couldn't get the volume on the ground that I used to get. And I think that's kind of where everything kind of came to an end when I was 40. But 
I would say, I mean, my mid would run probably about 60 foot four or so 60 foot six and in, in given meets. And yeah. so that was my, that was my ability to just put power into that run and then take that power and try to convert it. So I would definitely say the, the run there. That, uh, yeah, this is a totally, this is a personal question and feel free not to answer. Uh, do you, uh, how many meters per second were you running on the runway? Um, Don't answer if you, it, no, I, no, no, that's fine. Um, I think my, like sharing your ACT score. No, it's, it's low. So I'm okay with it. Yeah. Um, no, I remember my fastest, I, I went through Peter McGinnis's stuff for years and my fastest, interestingly enough was Oh three. And I was probably running like nine, six, maybe. Okay. But I would think yeah. So you were fast. Time, well, but that was one year. I would say most of the time I, I, I spent my time at nine, three, nine, four. That was about okay. where I was averaging, you know, a few gotcha. times when I was a little beat up or coming back from an injury or something like that, it might've been like nine, one or nine, two kind of a thing, but averaging probably nine, three, nine, four. And then I had that spike around nine, six and oh three, but I didn't, I don't think I ever saw another year where I was at nine, six. Right. And that, uh, proves your point to, and we see this all the time with vaulters we work with is it's like, well, how is this kid able to move this pole? But this kid's like way faster, like, and they can't move that pole and they hit the back of the box really hard, you know, like, and some people have just an ability to be able to really hit the back of the box. Chris kind of looks like that to me. Like, it looks like he hits the back of the box pretty hard and he's a big person. You were a big person. And, and you, when you really hit the back of the box like that, um, you can make up for a little bit of that, you know, if you're not running, you know, extremely fat, like you were talking about like nine, six, nine, seven, but you really are able to convert that energy into, into, you know, stored energy in the pole. And you really, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like a skill in itself being able to just really boom, hit the back of the box really hard. You know, Well, I think the interesting thing about this is this is kind of where I've been in my coaching world the last eight to 10 years was to really dive into the idea that coming into the takeoff, I think there's an efficiency scale, you know, there's an efficiency, efficiency scale. And I think, you know, like how people talk about the brain and how, what percentage of the brain we're actually using. I feel that's the takeoff. Mm -hmm. I feel there's a huge percentage of efficiency in the, in the, in the takeoff that we're only beginning to tap into that we're only figuring out. And I think the really good athletes that jump high, you know, whether it's Mondo or, Lavalini or whoever, um, I, I think they've figured out that efficiency. And I think sometimes we look at those meters per second saying, hey, there's a correlation between jumping high and 9.7 and jumping high. But also you're talking about guys who have become really efficient at putting energy into the pole and they can do it. There are guys that do it at 6.4, you know, and there are guys that do it at 5.9 or 5.10. And that's why the height doesn't start to make as much difference as we used to think it did. Um, I just feel like when I, when I watch kids now, it's like, wow, is there this huge untapped spot of efficiency that we aren't looking at, that we aren't paying enough attention to. And the more I've kind of dove into that, the more interesting the sport has become for me. And the more I think I'm getting out of my kids and I'm sure they get bored to death of it. You're like, Oh gosh, we got to talk about the plan again. We got to talk about last two steps, you know, but at the end of the day, if we all know that after you leave the ground, the jump can look all kinds of different ways and still jump high. Then the thing we have to trace it back to is either speed in or speed in or speed on the runway or speed into the pole. 
And if you're only running nine, three, nine, four, then tell me why I'm jumping higher running nine, three than I was when I was jumping, when I was running nine, six, mm. you know what I mean? I jumped yeah. higher run, running nine, three in 08 than I did in 03 when I was running nine, six, because I was delivering more efficiency into the takeoff in 08. And I was catching so much more of the ride. Probably the only time in my career I ever remember like getting flicked off the top of a pole. And I'm like, this is amazing. This is what pole vaulting is supposed to feel like. Right. And I wasn't even close to that in 03 when I was running like a freight train and still hitting it hard. It was just the efficiency of how to time it up. And right. I remember one time, one time when I jumped that 70 from 10 steps, I remember thinking that the thing that made that happen was that the, the, the pole went forward and found the left corner of the box and caught in the corner and went. That was the only thing I could come up with because I was running strong. I was hitting it like I always had, but all of a sudden I was rolling poles, catching it better and jumping higher than I'd ever jumped. And right. I'm like, the only thing that's different. And I looked at videos from past sessions and this session, the only thing that was different was that the pole was finding the left corner and stopping in the left corner. I'm like, that's gotta be the ticket to jumping high. The, the pole gets into the left corner of the box. Yeah. And I'm like, no, later on, I just learned that, no, that's what happens when you load a pole, when you load a pole really well, it's going to, it's going to bend more and it's going to get into that corner. Right. And it's going to catch and go. So that was when I started figuring out, okay, it had nothing to do with that. It was just the fact that I was loading it so much. I was so much more efficient through that hit. And right. to me, that's the thing that I, I, I go back to in my career is like, man, if I could figure out how to jump with that kind of efficiency from a long run, I probably could have jumped 90 or 95 or higher for sure, because that, that 70 from 10 steps was easy. And I thought that's what tells me that we're missing something. And I had a kid that graduated this last year. He was at the trials, Ethan Bray. He jumped 61 from 12 steps and he jumped 65 from 16. His PR is 65, but he jumped 61 from 12 at conference right? because he was coming back from a quad injury. I'm like, you're so much more efficient from 12. We just have to figure out how to get that type of efficiency from 16 and you'll jump 80. And, and we see that a lot though. Don't you yeah, see that a lot? Sure, like where, time. where, where it's like, uh, you know, a kid's really like, just like knocking on, I mean, for me too, like I, yeah. I used to need jump mid 17s from my five or my six, but I go back to nine and I'd be like, all right. Jumping mid seventeens, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, what's going that, on? <laughs> that's the thing that makes you want to bang your head against the wall. But to me, coaching now—that's the—that's the key to everything. The key is mm -hmm. like, man, if you can do this from a shorter run, now we just have to figure out how to take speed, add it to it, and do the same thing. That's what we should spend our time on. And granted, we should—we need to be focusing on on getting faster and stronger. We're doing that too, but. Yeah. You know, I think I think of a guy like Russ Buller, you know what I mean? Russ Buller could could run like the wind, you know what I mean? He's jumping 80. And I always remember thinking, man, if he times one up, we're all in trouble. <laughs> you know what I right. mean? I'm, and with that guy running the way he ran and and just being stacked and just and in a really good jump, a real efficient jump. And I was mm -hmm. just like, Boy, I hope he never figures out how to get <laughs> if, he, if he figures out how to get efficient with that, we're all in trouble, you know. Right. And I think right. that's what Hartwig did really well. Hartwig could could stay on the gas those last two steps and really carry that speed through there. And I think that's why he was able to jump six, you know, six meters a bunch of times, just because he was so efficient carrying that speed across the last couple of steps, you know. So. Yeah. And that makes sense. And, and if you, I mean, and the crazy thing that always used to really frustrate me is, is I'd be like, okay, well, I'm, I'm, you know, jumping on a, a, a 15, six long pole 
um, from my five or my six and I'm, I'm making 17 and a half, but then I'm going back on a five meter pole from full and it's a, it's a big pole. Like how, how is this not happening for me? Like, how am I not jumping a foot higher, you know? And, uh, it's very, very strange. So I, one thing that, uh, kind of, it it was a kind of a fad. I don't know. It's not a fad. Fad's a bad word for it because it's important. Um, people used to, people used to really think that the answer lied in the pole drop. Uh, and I'm, I don't know. I, I don't really get into too much technical like jargon like that, (laughs) but, but, uh, some people have suggested like, Oh no, no, it's, it's just the pole drop, just the pole drop. That's what creates the efficiency over those last few strides. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think it goes back to what we honestly believe works for that athlete. I think if, if at some point we're chasing for something to look a certain way, but it takes the athlete out of their rhythm and their ability mm-hmm. to have confidence in what they're doing. It won't matter. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like you could, you could get somebody to do it the right way, but if they're backing off all of a sudden, cause they don't feel comfortable with it. Well, now you're changing another dynamic. That's even worse. Right. So I think there are certain, there are certain times where obviously we're chasing kind of an ideal world um, or what we want it to look like, or, Hey, this is really going to help us if we can make this change. But then we have to determine what's the, what's the process in, in making that change and how much dark times do we have to go through? Because I Absolutely. Usually, the more, more time you spend in the dark time, the more your confidence goes down and then it's, you lose other things that you were doing really well. And so right. I, I never want to make a, a change that's outside of their comfort zone until they're ready to do it. And they have the confidence to do it. And then it usually even goes faster. It actually, it actually progresses faster. If, if they carry a little of that confidence, I just think confidence is a huge part of Oh, it's gigantic. It's, it's keep that king. In, yeah. If you can Confidence keep that in contact, king. yeah. If you can keep that in context while you develop them, then it, it goes. But if you're making changes because you think it needs to look a certain way and it, it actually stalls them for a longer period of time, then you run the risk of them falling into a hole and getting, you know, Right. I mean, what's, what's the risk versus reward on this investment? Like, so are we, okay. So we want to change this. Okay. So how long is this going to take? All right. It's going to take a year and a half or two years. Are you willing to give up these two years? And, and do you think that there's enough reward on the other side uh, to go into those dark times? Like you were talking about for a couple, a year or two or whatever to overhaul whatever it is that you're working on. Like if you think that overhauling it and at the end of the two years, you're going to be two feet better then let's run it. Let's do it. You know, but at the end of the day, that's a big investment. It's very risky at times. Emily Grove has always been that way. I've never been a fan of her pole drop, but I also know that the bread and butter of her jump has been her hit and her step through because she's only running 8.1 meters per second, maybe Mm. 8.2 if she's lucky. And so for her, it was always like, well, if I really want to tweak this pole carry, then when it comes down like it should, she feels like, oh, I can't get it down in time. And I'm not ready to move my hands. So she moves her hands late and she leans back. And to me, that's worse to have late hands and be leaning back than whatever efficiency I'm losing on that pole drop. So at some point, you know, in this, in the fall, we're like, okay, let's really work these pole drops and mm-hmm. let's see, you know, off the runway, if we can find it, if it will find its way into your running down the road but I can't cue it, you know, in March or April when she's trying to get ready for a meet. 
Right. And, and I'm now all of a sudden I got her leaning back and laid on her hands. That's, that's worse. So right. I think there's, you work with things, but it's gotta be within the, the realm of keeping the athlete confident. That's kind of where I always lived anyway. Yeah. And I, I always like, uh, you know, working on things like that are, uh, things that are going to, could severely impact a vaulter, um, work, like you said, work on them off the runway. And then when yeah. you come back on the runway, don't even think about them. Right. And if you do them enough off the runway, yeah. then there's a chance they'll bleed into your vault and you yeah. won't even realize it, you know? 100%. And that's, that's yeah. a, I think that's a really good tool to use, yeah. but overhauling a kid's vault. It's tough. Like, it's yeah. tough, man. Yeah. It's very and they, and difficult. They, and there's been things that they, that they do that they've had success with. So it's like, if you get way away from that, then they get detached from their jump and they don't know where to go with it and how to improve it because now they're lost in between. I don't have the good jump I or the, I don't have the good bars I used to have with my ugly technique. And now I can't make the new pretty technique work and I'm jumping low. Where am I? You know, and they get lost right. in this, this Neverland world. So I think I try to learn the athlete well enough to, to know what changes to make and when. And I think that's what Earl was good at doing too. Earl yeah. had a very simplified, easy way of doing it where he just, you know, he knew enough about the vault to say, Hey, I, I don't necessarily want, necessarily want to tackle that yet. You know, and he never talked about us with that. It was just like, well, let's just try this. Let's just do this. You know? And then that's kind of how it just flowed kind of from a, uh, an easier way, I think, you know? Right. Right. For sure. For sure. Well, um, how, has your transition from, I mean, it's been a minute now, but, yeah. uh, how's your transition out of elite vaulting and into coaching and being a dad and, yeah. and all those types of things? Like, how was that? You go from a three-time Olympian and you won a bronze medal, bronze, yeah, bronze 08. in 08. Yeah. And, um, and then all of a sudden it's like, all right, now I'm a coach. I'm a dad. I'm, I'm, you know, mowing the lawn and doing, yeah. you know, doing yeah. stuff like that. How, how has that transition been for you? And were there any mental struggles that you had, uh, getting, getting into this new rhythm? Yeah, it was, I think each one had its own challenge. I think, uh, having a kid, I probably wouldn't have done if I wasn't 40, cause I didn't like, I never had baby fever or anything like that. It was just like, well, I'm 40. If we're going to do this, we probably better do this. Right. And you know, and I remember he was born and like, okay, you want to cut the cord and he's screaming. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm going <laughs> to jack that up. I'm going to let you do that. You know? And he's like, all right, you want to pick him up? And I'm like, you to take him to the, to your, to his mom. And I'm like, ah, I'll let you do that. You know, like, I didn't <laughs> touch thing. I thought for sure I was going to break it. Um, and then it's like, after just immersing myself into it, it's just been the most amazing thing in my life, you know, yeah. my kid. And I think coaching has kind of become that way too. You know, I think by the time I was coming out of 2012, I knew I was done, you know, my body was spent and it was, I was ready to move on, but I had been coaching through that process already. I think mm -hmm. I remember, um, coaching, like recruiting Bethany Buell. She was probably one of my, my first kind of, uh, she won a national championship for me down the road, but probably I recruited her in like 2010 or 2011, 2000. So I was recruiting and I was coaching a little bit while I was still jumping. So it was just kind of heavy vaulting, light coaching. And it just kind of, so it wasn't like one day I woke up and I'm like, well, I'm a NARP. I got to go coach. You know, I think <laughs> it was more, um, just kind of a transition, which made it probably easier, you know, but right. 
Um, I've enjoyed it. I, I think, you know, we all have to have an outlet for what we used to do. You know, I think I'm still very, I'm just as competitive now as I was when I was jumping. I just have a different avenue with how I apply it. And I think that's the fun part for me is, is I don't care about how many national champions someone has or how many, how many, uh, Olympians they have or how many medals they have like none of that matters to me because I don't know how you you determine what success is what is Mm. success is it one Olympics is it three Olympics is it three Olympics or is it a medal is it a world record is it a whatever and and not only that the target is constantly moving if you make an Olympic team then it's like okay I got to try to be a medalist well if I'm a medalist is it gold I mean it, it just it's arbitrary but I think what I've learned to to kind of anchor in on is that I want to find out what someone's ultimate potential is because all the rest of the stuff are just moving targets. If I can have someone come in and say, man, that's as good as I can possibly be. And now I'm ready to move on to the next part of my life. That to me is, is a successful coach. And that's the way I determined whether I was satisfied with my career or not. Like if I, at the end of my career, I'm like, well, I just wasn't a six meter guy because I know I did everything I could to try to be as good as I could. And that's how I sleep at night with a career is saying, yeah, I was, I, I did everything I possibly could. I probably should have snuck around 90. There was a couple of jumps that I thought should have stayed, but at the end of the day, I sleep well, you know, and I want the kids that I coach to have that same experience because that's the way I felt, um, kind of represented success is do you, can you walk away from it saying, man, that's as good as I could possibly have been. And then if you can, then it's, it's easy. You know, you sleep at night, you move on to the next phase of your life, whether it's kids or a job or whatever it's going to be, you know? So I that's kind of what I hope for my kids. Now I take the same at that same mentality as an athlete, put it into my coaching. Like I'm going to coach the hell out of you until I figure out what you're capable of doing. And my goal is to get that to happen before you run out of time, <laughs> mm-hmm. whenever that is, if that's collegiate eligibility or if it's post-collegiate, then I get another year. You know what I mean? And I'm going to keep trucking on that until I can, I can have you experience the same thing I did. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, uh, it's, it is tough though. Like, like you said, the moving target, you know, and, and the funny thing is, is every, you know, in my position, I'm like, well, you know, I, I really wanted to jump, you know, 570 or 580 and I really wanted to go to an Olympic trials and, and, um, but if I would have made it there, I'd have been like, wow, it'd be nice to make an Olympic team, you know? And, and that's the thing is that there's people right now, I'm sure, you know, Mondo is, is sitting and he's like, I'm the world record holder, but man, I'd really like to jump this, you know, or that there's always going to be something out there, you know, that you can, you know, that you want, you want to chase. And that's just a part of life. You know, that's the cool part about the sport. I think that's what makes us come back. I think the people who don't have that, or can't readjust and have a new goal. That's probably why they, you know, they move on to other things and that's right. great. But I think if, if you are really fired up about pole vaulting and you, you assess a goal and you achieve it, you automatically are already starting another goal. You know what I mean? As soon as it happens, you're like, well, you know, Mondo, I want to go medal. And, but man, I, I was six inches over that world record. I know I can jump it. So next time when I win the gold medal, I want to jump a world record when I do it. You know what I mean? Right. I think, that's what competitiveness is. That's the nature of it. That's what's at the heart. And I think you can do that as an athlete. And I think it's easy transition over into coaching too. 
do you find that all of that stuff that you learned um specifically with your mentality and 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 things like that um transition over to coaching pretty well i i personally you know i i used to i when i got done with my career i was very bitter because i didn't do those things i wanted to do and and then i and then i i started you know this gym and and we're working with these kids and and I very vividly now see like, whoa, I was not working for myself. I was not doing those yeah. things for myself. I was doing those yeah. things to prepare me to be able to serve these people. Sure. And it's just really crazy now because all the lessons that I learned in my pole vaulting career are just transferring directly yeah. over to you yeah. know the coaching and things like yeah. that. You know, I think that's where sometimes I struggle. I think a lot of times as an athlete, you have experiences or things that you've done that worked for you and you think, okay, well, this can be applied to this athlete. And, and I, my first beginning part of my coaching career, I, I really didn't necessarily model kids after what I did, but the mm. mentality of like, Hey, let's just fire up. Let's hit it better. And, and I've always, I've learned it over the last few years, but I think I listened to Brad Walker's thing and I sent him a message afterward because we roomed together in Tokyo. So we had some time together, just, you know, chewing the fat again, because we hadn't seen each other for a little while. Oh, cool. I'm like, holy cow, Brad hit the nail on the head when he said that the personality really becomes a huge factor in someone's jump, the technical aspects of it, how they, how they jump. And I'm like, that's why my super sweet girl, that's very smart, that has very specific cues that she executes, but isn't very aggressive in a mindset. She just doesn't have like a like if, if someone were to, to come across and slap her in the face, you'd probably say, ow, that hurt. You know, why'd you do that? Instead of like me, if you did that, I'd fire back and come at you hard. You know what I mean? Right, right. And I think there's, there's, that's a different personality, different mentality. And to, to apply my mentality of like, hey, just come in here and knock it. Let's go hit it. And she's like, okay, I'm going to hit it on this one. You know, and it's a, it's a, it just doesn't fit the personality. And so that's the challenge of coaching. It's not knowing what to do. It's knowing how to get the person to execute what you want them to do. And that's a, that's a bigger lesson in understanding the person than understanding the vault. That's the thing that I've challenged myself is understanding the kids better so that I know how do I frame this in a way that isn't what I would do or how I would do things when I was jumping, but will work for this athlete. And, and it's across the board. I got one girl that if I give really specific cues, she's so analytical and so smart that she over obsesses about the cues and, and can't execute. But uh-huh. if I say, oh, just be aggressive, just knock it, hit it hard. She'll do those two or three things that I want her to do without even actually cueing those things. Right. And that's like, okay, I got to live in that world. I got to live in the philosophical coaching world with her <laughs> where this one, I got to dive in and say, I want to know where this foot lands and I want to see your chest in this position. You know what I mean? And it's just, that dichotomy has become interesting to me in coaching because it's probably goes back to my efficiency model. You know, that's the efficiency in the takeoff we were talking about earlier. This is efficiency in coaching. Now I'm talking about and how a really good I- point. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I coach very, I'm, I get very pumped up, very pumped up and like, and very like excited and, and hooting and hollering. Like I, it's not on purpose. It just happens. It's just who I am, you know, like, and, and it just comes out and I'll work with somebody and, and then they'll go to my dad's class and they'll work with him. And my dad will, he, he's kind of sitting back and just, Hey, just uh, raise your grip, two fingers and, you know, head back, you know, whatever. And then they'll come out of that class, just killing it. 
And I'll be like, what the heck? And I'll, and then like, I'll realize like, well, maybe they don't want you to be up in their face the whole freaking time. Yeah. <laughs> like just to like get well, getting crazy. It's a good point. Cause I, I spend my time in both of those worlds. I, I, I tell my kids that your job is to bring the intensity on the runway. Like you have to find a way to do that. Pole vaulting is just, is not yeah. a sport that works if you're not bringing the intensity. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not a guy that's out there like, let's go. You know what I mean? But when they come over, and they get the cue. I'm like, hey, come on. You got to knock the heck out of this thing. Let's go. Stay on the gas and really hit it. Mm-hmm. Nope. Let's go. And then mm-hmm. after that, I'm quiet. Like I'm I'm watching the mid. I'm watching the jump. I'm doing whatever. I'm not the guy out there yelling at them when they're running down the runway. Right. Every now and then when I get really fired up, I might. But I, I kind of leave that to them to, to, to learn how to do that. Because if they don't learn how to do that, at some point, it's going to bite them. You know what I mean? Down the road. They have to learn that when they step on the runway they got to bring the focus and they got to bring the intensity. And that's, that's a, a coaching part that I'm trying to work on all the time that has nothing to do with the technical side. I always have to have that same speech with, uh, you know, like, uh, there'll be a nice young lady come in and I'll just pull her aside and I'll be like, Hey, listen, you seem like a really sweet person and, yeah. and you've just been awesome this whole entire time. But when you step between those two white lines, <laughs> want you to be an asshole, you, right? you <laughs> have to be not nice. Yeah, like, right. like you need to change into a different person. Nope, and nope. I think that that just kind of is an overarching yeah. thing in the pole vault that yeah. it's, it's almost like a, uh, you have to have that. Yeah. You got to um, bring it up to a hundred percent. I don't know how, I don't care how you do it. But you right. got you have to bring that last little three percent that sometimes you don't know you're bringing. You got to figure out a way to get to it and use it because it's such a big difference when you do it. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so some coaches, uh, some good athletes, really. I mean, some of the best athletes ever uh, to walk the earth can't coach worth a darn. Okay. Yeah. How is it that you like? Why do you think you like? I use. I guess I shouldn't use Michael Jack- Jordan as a uh, an example here, but you know, some people have said like Michael Jordan is an incredible athlete, but as a coach, is maybe missed the mark, you know. So yeah. what? Why is it that you were able to make that transition from being a great athlete and now you're a great coach? Um. Well, I, I think. Um... I think it all goes back to the Bell Athletics days. You know, I think what I learned from Earl is how to try to simplify things. But the 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 thing that he was the best at is he could find the one thing that you really needed to to change to be to be much better. And that one thing was always spot on. You know, I think he had a in the pole vault, we can always look at someone and say, Oh, you got this wrong, we can make this better, we can make that better, we can make that better. The trick is where do we start? What's the number one thing we want to start with first? And I think he was really good at that. So I've tried to learn as much as I could from Earl and Jeff and Ty and, you know, Grande and everybody that came through there during my time there. Um, but I also learned that um, the, the group was so vital to us and our success. The way Earl cared about us, the way we cared about each other. Um, and I think that type of environment makes a huge difference. So with my kids, what's really important to me is that we have a great relationship, that we are on the same page. They understand what we're trying to do. They know that there isn't anything I'm not going to do to try to fix them. You know what I mean? If they have a bad meet, there's no chance I'm sleeping that night until I figure out what I think the problem is. And I'll be, and my wife will attest to this. 
I'll be in my bed at two o'clock in the morning and there'll just be an iPad light and I'm just going through their jumps. Right. And I'm going through their jumps. And I'm like, why did this not work? Why did this not happen? And sometimes it's evident. Sometimes it's like, oh yeah, she just missed this, this mess. And I go to bed pretty quick. Other times it's like, okay, there's something in here I'm missing and I'm not sleeping until I figure it out. And I think yeah. the kids understand that about me. And I think, um, that's what they respond to, you know? And I think what makes a good coach is, is good kids. And I don't mean just physically talented kids. I mean, good people that believe in what you're doing. They know they trust you and they work their asses off. And if you put those types of things together, then it's, that's, that's the, the recipe for success. It has nothing to do with how much you know, or, I mean, there's a small percentage of that, you know what I mean? Like guiding them in the right direction. But, um, I think it boils down to the more outside things that seem to matter in these situations. You know, can they come to my office if, if their boyfriend dumps them? Of course, you know, cause it's a part of them being successful. If you're having chaos in your life outside of pole vaulting, it's going to find its way into your pole vaulting. But yeah. if you have everything in line and it's like easy and I'm happy and I'm walking into track today and I'm excited and I'm motivated, you're going to have a far better session, whether it's technical or just speed, right? Or a lift or whatever it's going to be. And so my goal, my goal is to, is to make their lives so good that when they walk in the door, they can execute at the highest, you know, highest possible ability. And, and that just creates confidence. It creates a great experience. It creates, you know, trust it does all these things you know and i think those are the things that i learned fundamentally at earls was the relationship with the with the athlete and and understanding you know how to be able to guide them with with you know what strengths and weaknesses they have yeah i think uh i think that's i think that's right from an outsider's perspective i think good people make good coaches yeah. and you seem you know People, people aren't going to go to your school if they don't find but, you to be a good person. <laughs> true, but that's a, that's a 50-50 coin. Good people make good athletes too. You know what right, I mean? right, it, right. It, it's it, a two-way street. Correct. It's a two -way it absolutely street. is. It absolutely is. And that's the thing I look for. I don't care if, if you jump 19-4, but you're an a-hole, I'm not the right spot. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? And I think that's the thing I, and I, that's the thing I promise to the kids that I, that I have in my program is I'm never going to add somebody that isn't going to make the program or the group better. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's kind of what fundamentally happened about athletics. It was like, these guys got together and they voted whether or not they wanted me to come, you know, be invited to train there. Right. And I think, you know, I don't have the kids vote, but I do value their opinion. I do value whether they feel like this is going to be a positive thing for the group. And, and I, I, I want to make that experience for them a reality. And right. that's what drives me. I care about these kids so much that I want to make sure they have the experience that they're going to have. And I have kids from Italy, Estonia, Virginia, um, Arizona, Ohio, Michigan. They're not local kids. They're kids that picked up their entire lives to move to this place to have this experience. So I owe them that. I owe them something extremely like eye-dropping, just amazing. You know what I mean? Something that's the very I, valuable. Yeah, that's the thing I wake up every day trying to figure out if I can deliver. How do I how do I deliver this for this for this athlete who's made these sacrifices? You know, and right. that's that's kind of where I think if you have people that care, they these kids know that. I think I hope they do anyway. Um, but it's my goal to my job to to um, make sure that comes across. Make sure they yeah. get that. 
And I, I mean, I think, like I said, like I said, I think, you know, good people make good coaches. Like you said, you know, yeah. good athletes, uh, it, it's a two way street, but I also, I also think that there's something to be said for, um, you can't, you can't BS your way into like convincing somebody that you know something. I think it's yeah. very like when, when you talk to somebody who knows how to do something and really has a deep understanding and a, a supreme confidence in what they do, I think it's very easy for a person to read that. Yeah. And, and I think it's easy, you know, as a recruit, when you walk in and you talk to somebody, um, especially if you, if as an athlete, you have some understanding of the pole vault, it's just easy to see right through BS, man. Yeah. Like, well, like, it's just like, it's just like when I, whenever I talk to somebody, even like, you know, another coach or something like that, I'm sometimes I'm like, man, I can see right through that, man. Yeah. <laughs> like like yeah. it's, and so that's, that's another reason why I think from an outsider's perspective that, you know, you get a lot of people, I think that you admit that, aura of like, okay, listen, I, I really know what I'm doing. Trust me. If you trust me, I can get you there. I can help. I hope that's the case because that's why I hate recruiting. Cause that's kind of (laughs) what recruiting is. It's like, you have to convince somebody that you know what you're doing, but I'm the last guy that's going to walk out there and say, Oh, I'm, I'm, I know everything. You know what I mean? Cause I think the guys that say that are the ones you should worry about. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I've lost recruits because I didn't walk in the door and say, uh, well, you're going to make the Olympic team this year. You know what I mean? As a high school senior, you know, mm-hmm. cause you're jumping really well. You should be able to jump 15, four by the end of the year. And you'll make that Olympic team when that's what their thought. And the coaches know that's what they're thinking. So they buy into it, you know? And I think I'm, I'm the guy that says, well, you know, I think if you could jump, you know, if you're a 14, five girl, you could jump 14, nine or 14, 10 this year. That'd be awesome. And then another year in the college system, you could probably get to 60. And then by the time you're a junior, you're probably in that 65, 70 range, you know? And they're like, right. well, I'm jumping it this year. I don't know. You don't know what you're talking about because <laughs> I'm never going to be the guy that just makes promises. I, I learned that from myself. If, if you would have looked at me at a 14, six kid and said, you're going to jump 19 feet someday. I would said, you're full of it. There's no chance. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I can't look at someone and tell if they're going to jump a certain height. You know, I, I don't know that. I just know I'm going to work my ass off until I find out what you can do. Right. Like, that's the thing. I'm probably a terrible recruiter because I don't, I don't, I, I don't, that's not being a terrible recruiter. That's, that's just being honest. Like recruiting though, because it's, it's really about selling and I I hate selling what we are. I I don't want to ever sell anybody on what we are. I just want to communicate with them. I love getting to know them as part of the recruiting process. I think that's fun getting to know what kind of person they are, what they love about pole vaulting and all those kinds of things. But as soon as it comes in, like, I got to pitch you or I got to sell you. on this, <laughs> I just feel like a dirty car salesman and I hate doing it. So I just, I, I paint a picture and, and I say, this is who we are. We, we are who we are and some vibe and some don't, you know, and the ones that vibe love it. They have a great experience and yeah. I hope they do. And, and we, we, we stay lifelong, you know, contacts. And, and to me, that's what's special, but yeah. I, I hate that side of recruiting where I got to try to sell somebody on. I'm just terrible at it. I could see you sitting across the table from an 18 year old kid and they're just like, yeah. well, you know, you're just bartering back and forth. Yeah. It's like, come on, man. You're, yeah. you're 18 years old, man. I'm not going to sit here and, you know, lay down for you. Like if you want to come here, come here. If not, I know. And unfortunately that's not what gets kids to sign. You know what I mean? Like I got to be like, Oh yeah, I'll get you the Olympics in four years time. We'll jump 19 feet. Yeah. No worries. You know? And it's just, 
it's such BS. I don't ever want to do it. I just, I, cause I can't look at them and tell them they're going to be a 19 foot guy. I don't know. Exactly. I could, I could blow sunshine up the backside and tell them that, but that's, that's not, that doesn't make any sense. You know? Right. Right. I could just promise them that, that I'm going to work my butt off that, that you won't find somebody else that will care more about your, and you've heard Chris say that that's legitimate. That's the way I feel about all the kids that I coach is that there isn't going to be out some, there's somebody out there that's going to outwork me. I can promise you that. And that's what Chris said on the podcast. He yeah. was like, he was like, that is why I went to South Dakota was because I could just tell. And he, he could, he didn't see any BS in you. Yeah. And he was just like, you know what, this is, this is, this guy's going to really, really go after it for me. And, and, uh, also the other thing too, is that, um, the cool thing with the Chris thing is that you and Emily is that you have, been there you've Mm -hmm. been to where they want to go that does in my opinion that adds some value too i think it adds confidence i think it adds trust i think whether or not it's relevant in terms of you know because like you said there are some athletes out there that were great but didn't necessarily carry it over into coaching i think what you have is the my success or not even success but my experiences in the sport i think just get my foot in the door on trust to where they say, Hey, he's suggesting I try this. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and give it a shot. And then it's yeah. my job to make sure that that thing that I get them to take a shot on works. And mm-hmm. if it does, then I got two feet in the door. Right. And then I can get the next thing going. And if that works, then it just builds and builds and builds. And that's where I think kids really believe. And when kids believe, I mean, if Earl Bell told me to run down the runway with 10 cents in my left pocket, I wouldn't know why I would just do it. I'm, like, yep, <laughs> idea. I'm doing it, you know? And I think right. that's just not, not just respect I had for Earl, but obviously, you know, he was a, he was a guy that spent a long time in the sport, had a lot of experiences and I just, I trusted, you know, and I think that's where it starts. If I can get someone to, to believe in me and, and my experiences in the past, give me one foot in the door, then that's all I'm using that for. That's yeah. Thing. And I, I'm going to push back on that just a little bit because with, with a situation like Chris though, like if I were in his shoes, having been a 550 guy coming out of high school, I would be like, okay, I think that I am going to have a legitimate shot at pole vaulting post collegially. Yeah. So I don't have any idea about who's going to be my agent. I don't have any idea about right. how, what, how to get into meets. I don't know. I have any idea of like, uh, Hey Derek, you know, remember, remember uh, when you were at the yeah. Olympics three times, um, how do you do this? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I guess yeah. like if, if you're looking at it from, you know, uh, I don't know if they're thinking that far in advance when they're in high school, but if I was looking at it, I'd be like, okay, so I'm going to get a great experience in college and let's just say that I should so happen to get to the level where I can compete after college. I am going to, I'm going to also be signing up for a little bit of guidance, um, in that realm too. So it's almost like you kind of get a little bit of a two for one. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. I think that's probably, a um, a veteran mindset. You know, I think, I think I hear all the time, 18 year olds say, yeah, I want to go to the Olympics, you know, like yeah. going to Walmart to buy some socks. You know what I mean? Like, that's what I want to do. <laughs> and I think it, it, I don't even know if there's a forethought after that. It's like, it seems like they get to the spot where like, yeah, I'm going to the Olympics and I'm just going to, 
I'm going to, and I don't even need a great coach to do it. Cause I'm just going to make it, you know what I mean? I, I don't know how much of that's floating out there, but I do think that they're, they're, you know, there was an interesting point where Chris jumped one centimeter higher than I did. We were at Howard Wood and he put the bar at 586. And I thought, okay, and this was in college. And I thought, this is going to be interesting because when he goes over this, am I not relevant anymore? You know what I mean? Like, right. <laughs> he jumped higher than you. You're worthless. <laughs> you don't know anything anymore. I know everything. Here we go. Right. And so I think there was, you know, I didn't really feel that way. We had a good enough relationship, but it was always interesting to hear someone say, okay, now I've exceeded my coach you know, is how much value is there still left in there? So fortunately after that, it didn't change. He was still, he was still listening. There's years and years and years of value still left yeah. in you. I mean, well, the, the I career that, that you had. With Earl, though, too. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. I always thought that with Earl too, though. I thought, you know, 87, but he's still, there's so much knowledge there. I just want to soak up. So, right, right. Well, I want to, I want to respect your time, but I did want to touch, uh, at, it's been, I, thing going on a little bit. Um, I, I wanted to talk quickly just about, um, since it just happened, the whole experience with, uh, having coached your first Olympic, is he, is he your first Olympic medalist? Yep. Yeah. Yep. For yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How uh, was it? What, like, so it sounds like you were able to go. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was cool. I mean, I, I think I've, it's interesting. I, I've, now officially been on both sides of the rail. And I think just as much jitters as you have as an athlete, um, I think you have as a coach, if not more so, because you're not in control. You know, I think there's, there's that element. I always tell this to people. It's like, if the plane's going down and you don't know how to fly an airplane, you still want to be at the controls, yanking on stuff and pushing buttons. Cause at least you feel like you're doing something, you know? And I think that's the thing with, with coaching. It's like, it's not necessarily coaching him to what I want him to do. I need to set the standards and set the run based on what I think he's going to do. And mm. that's the trick. It's like, well, is he going to come out of the back super fired up? Cause he just called for the clap and it's a third attempt. Okay. Well, do I back the standards up? Do I, do I achieve him back four inches? You know, what, what is he going to do in this situation? And then how do I set the, set the stage for him to be successful in whatever he's doing. But I think um, the thing about Chris is he's always been kind of, cut from my mental cloth in the sense that, um, when he's pole vaulting, he's, he's always finding a way to bring hundred percent. That guy in a meet never, never not brings it. And I think yeah. that's kind of what I tried to do in my, in my, and I don't, strangely, we never really had to have that conversation because he's always done it naturally. Um, but I think it was probably one of the things that are probably one of the only similarities we have, you know, we have very different jumps, very, very different styles. Um, but he's always had that. And I think that's been the thing that's he's, it's really been an anchor for him in being consistent and being what he's been able to do. But he runs right. like a freight train. He runs 9.7 down the runway. He, Jeez. you know, we're working on his efficiency down the takeoff. Um, but his swing has always been there. So I think going to the Olympics, you know, he'd been jumping, I think he had jumped four or five nineties before we went to the Olympics. He took a little bit of a confidence killer at Stockholm. He went in there, got sixth or seventh, and only jumped 75 or something like that right before. That was his last meet before the Olympics. Yeah. So he came home for a training block for about 10 days. And I think he's like, well, did I peak? And I'm, I'm nervous that I'm <laughs> running out of gas. And, you know, I was jumping six meters in June or looking at like I could jump six meters in June. And maybe am I falling off? I'm like, Chris, you've done a ton of traveling. You just came off the trials where you jumped 90. You flew right over. You jumped 90 in Poland. 
your body's just catching up with you. I said, let's take a little recovery here. Let's get your body back under control. We'll stim it back up. We'll have a few tech sessions. We'll get on the plane. We'll be ready to go. Mm -hmm. And his last jump session, he finally felt really, really good and swung around a 90 bungee. We just had a bungee up there and he swung around, looked easy. And I think that was the confidence kick that he needed to go in and, and do what he was ready to do. And so, right. and that was crazy. I mean, he was, he was on first attempts all the way through prelims, which was fun. He wasn't rolling a very big pole. So I was a little bit leery of that. I was like, well, he's kind of on a small pole. I don't think that's a pole that I think he's going to be able to be competitive on in a final. And I would have thought we would have rolled past it in prelims, but it was certainly enough to jump 75 or whatever he jumped. Yeah. Um, but then once we got in the final, he just brought that last 2% and it was, it was easy. He was actually executing the cues we've been working on all year really well, but strangely missing some of the things he'd been automatic in, you know, like yeah. we're always working on bringing the last two steps in there and, and trying to put the foot down and get through that takeoff step a little bit without breaking. Cause he always had a little bit of a break step there and he was really putting it down well and stepping through it. But all of a sudden he was missing his hands, you know, and I don't know if it's just the timing was different cause he was attacking it so well that his hands were a little bit late um so that was what happened at 19 he just missed the hit a little bit and came short and then after that we got we got the arms time back up and then it was first attempt at 87 i think a second at 95 but only because he had a blow throw on the first one and then that 97 on a first was was fun you know that's and, insane you know he jumped 19.5 and he was jumping around like oh the haze in the bar you know i just i think i want a medal i'm good and, and i'm like i just right in the minute i'm like i scream stay in it you know stay in it we're still in it like don't don't just say, okay, I'm done. You know what I mean? Like I can't let there. it I go. Yeah. I got a medal and that was my thing. I was like, stay in it. And then he went around 97 on a first. So I knew he was still going, but Jeez. as soon as Mono went over 602 on a first and he was back to back, I was like, oh gosh, we got to hang here a little bit. That's, it's going to be tough. But I think yeah. if, he had, if he had had the jump on his first at 602 on the pole, we went to on a second because he blew through. If we'd had that pole on a first with that jump, I think he would have snuck around 602. So I, that wouldn't have changed the results. Mondo just would have popped over the next one by yeah. eight inches, you know, because he was just he was on fire. But That's I think, insane. yeah, I think just to go into that meet, jump a personal best, come out with a medal. I don't know if it gets any better than that. You know? Well, and I mean, he correct me if I'm wrong, but he hasn't really been exposed to that amount of European travel. Like, is this like his first kind of season where it's like, yeah. hey, I'm going over to Europe quite a bit? Yeah, he went. He went over last summer, but just for a couple because it was kind of lockdown stuff. Right. Um, and he kind of, he didn't jump like he was ready to. I think he went over there and like, oh, I got to prove that I can hang with these guys. And I don't, I wouldn't say he, uh, it wasn't choked. That's not even close to the right word, but just a little bit preoccupied about the idea of being a professional athlete and hanging with these guys and trying to prove himself. Mm. And I think trying so hard that it just was square peg through round holes kind of stuff. And I think um, this year when he started traveling indoors, he did quite a bit of circuit stuff indoors, um, which I think helped a lot. He went over there. He, he jumped 19, he jumped 90 in his first home meet at our home spot. We have a really good runway and he jumped that like in January. And I'm like, Whoa, I wasn't ready for that. I was hoping we'd jump an 80, but he jumped a 90. Right. And I'm like, well, shoot, he's ready. So he goes overseas and he jumps well overseas, all sun, all indoor and comes back and we do another training block. And then he, he goes around and he jumps well in the U S he jumped at Mount Sac. He jumped in down in Texas and he was jumping nineties everywhere. So I think he just, he had enough experience within that year 
and especially traveling over to Europe. He did the Grand, he did the Diamond League final uh, last year in Zurich and had a great experience. Yeah. But I think he's just a different dude this year. I think he's really grown. So that's kind of been a big part of his success, I think. Yeah, that was, that was just extremely impressive, you know, to just roll into there, you know, after having graduated on strange terms and, yeah. and then, you know, going into, like you said, like maybe a, like a kind of a weird first summer in Europe and yeah. then, and then was able to come back and, and put that together. It's just yeah. really, really crazy. And well, four years ago, both you guys. yeah, that was fun. But four years ago in 17 at the world championships, you didn't make the final, you know? So, I mean, that's the thing you, yeah. you go from a guy that makes 60, but can't make 70 when you jumped 80 already. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least 75 of that year. Um, you know, I think that's just such a different experience the next time you put the U S uniform on, you know, and I think he was hungry. Yeah. I think, you know, I think that's the same thing that our NCAA kids go. You got, you come in and you, you make it to the first round and then you, you kind of got to get your butt kicked at the first round to come back hungry the next year. And I think it's, it, pole vaulting cyclical. You do it in college and you just, you got to do the same thing when you go to the post-collegiate world, you got to kind of get beat around a little bit until you, you learn how it works and, and you, you reassess and, and you get confident and you go after it and eventually it'll come back around, you know? Yeah. My dad always uh, told us when we were younger and we tell our athletes that we work with like, Hey, we want you to try to get down to the state meet your, your sophomore year, yep. you know, your sophomore year, you're going to get down there and then uh, you're going to, it's going to be your experience year. It's like, Oh, yeah. we're going to go have team dinner and we, yeah. we get to, it's an experience. And then you're going to get there and you'll be like, Whoa, this is crazy. Once it's time to do what you went there to do. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then you get that out of your system. And then your junior year, you can go and you can compete. Yeah. And then, and then your senior year is like, all right, I've been here. Yeah. And this is a business trip now. Yeah, and yeah. I'm going to take care of business, you know? So it's like uh, a cycle, isn't it? It's, it's crazy. It's like you, you come out of junior high and you get into high school. Maybe you're like king of the world in junior high track, right? And then you come into high school and you're, you're starting down here and you're just getting your butt kicked. And then it's like, oh, I cycle all the way around. And at some point now I'm the big dog in high school. And then you come into college and you got to start all over again and you got to get your butt kicked right. and you got to do all this. And, and then all of a sudden you come around the top of your college and maybe you're kind of one of the best kids in the nation, that kind of thing. And then you come into the post-collegiance and they eat you up. Yeah. And, it's like, <laughs> and it just, oh, how many times can you go around the circle? You know, that's the, that's the fun of this whole thing is like, how many trips around can I make it? Can I go one more trip? You know what I mean? That's absolutely. Fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I got two questions, two quick questions for you, and then, sure. then we can get off here. Um, I first one is you only get two things. Okay. Uh, the two okay. most important things, like if you could only recruit on two things, what would they be? Oh, that's a good one. If I can only recruit on two things. Like you, you literally are going to have like a piece of paper with a kid's name. I'll give you their height on what they, what they vaulted. Okay. Okay, So it says their name, they vaulted this high. And then there's only two things that are going to be on that piece of paper. Um, I would say the first thing and number one thing always is um, what kind of person are they? Are they, are they a good person? Do they work hard, you know, academically, athletically? Are they a nice person? Could they take a no height, go kick some rocks for two minutes and then come back and catch a mid on a teammate? You know what I mean? Mm. I I have a picture in my office of my two girls that were at the first round of the national meet and one girl had a rough day and didn't jump very well. And the other one PR'd to make the national meet. 
And I, and when she did that, she jumped into the arms of her teammate and the one who had a bad day and, and she caught her. And, and I have a picture right at that spot. And to me, that's the most important thing because when that person's down, the other one's going to be there. And when it's vice versa, the other one will be there. And so I think that's always first and foremost for me. And then probably the second thing, it probably won't be one specific thing, but I want to see what are they good at? What's their strength? Do they have mm. a strength that I can build on? If it's speed, okay, great. If it's, they have a really good jump, okay. You know what I mean? Or are they, are they just an intense person? You know what I mean? Like what's the, what's the one thing that says, Hey, I can build on that. That's, that's a good solid foundation of something I can build on because I've seen lots of people that jump high, but maybe don't necessarily jump high after that. And it's not the fault of the coach. It's not the fault of the athlete. It's just at some point, things like that happen, whether it's injuries or whether they get caught up in med school or, or trying to get into med school and they're, you know, they, they just aren't as focused as they were in high school. I mean, there's all kinds of things, but I think you have to anchor in on the one thing that you think this makes this person special. You know what I mean? Right. And, right. and can I, can I, can I take that and build around it? And that's usually kind of what I'm trying to look for is, is what's that one thing that I think I like that I can, I can have fun and enjoy building on. And, but first and foremost, it's, it's the person. The person. I want to spend my time with. Yeah. I mean, I want to enjoy coming to work. And that means if I'm coming to work and I'm having a blast, it's because the kids I'm hanging around are having a blast too. Right. And, and that's, that's important to me and in, in my ability to be able to, to come in the door fired up and motivated because I'm, I'm excited to be there. Right. Okay. Very cool. All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to build off that one just a little bit. So, okay. uh, you got a choice between the two, uh, exceptional speed, decent technique or not exceptional speed, decent speed, exceptional technique. What are you choosing? Uh, I, I think this goes back to my confidence. I feel like I can help them figure the vault out. So I take the speed. I take yep. the speed and I, <laughs> I kind of get them going. It's kind of like, you know, the, it's like, I got, I got a girl that's coming in from Estonia and she's five ten you know? And, wow. and I'm like, well, I, I, I can, I got a chance to make you faster. I can make a five ten girl faster, or at least try better than I can make a four foot eight girl, five foot 10. You know what I mean? Like, right. I think, I think my odds of, of kind of doing that with, with her are, are going to, are going to be higher than I would be able to get a, sh a short girl to be taller, you know? So right. I think if you're fast and you just have natural speed, I think let's take on the technical challenge of trying to figure it out, you know, but I, I, I love them all though. You know I mean? I have girls that are, are not super, super fast, but just technical wizards. And so let's go focus on speed. Let's get you faster, get you stronger, get you more explosive. So yeah. I got them all in my tank, you know, but if I, if I have a girl that can run, you know, seven flat in the 60, I'm going to take her. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And you can, obviously you can make people faster too, you know, but, uh, everybody that I, everybody yeah. that I ask that question to, they always are like, yep. Speed. Yeah. Speed. It's just, I, it's, it's an important part of the equation. We all understand that it's just sometimes one of the harder things to develop. You yeah. know what I mean? Like some people just, I, I, I trained speed so much and so hard cause I knew I wasn't running super fast. And other than 03, for whatever reason, I was kind of running, but man, it just was hard to get up. I could never get into the nine sevens. I was mm. never anywhere near as fast as Chris. And right. it just wasn't, I was never going to be that way. It just wasn't in my genetic makeup. But, you know, I think it, it certainly is something that if you can start with, 
then it, it gets a little bit easier to kind of figure out the technical side, I think. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, this is one of my favorite ones. Um, so you have to, you can only pick three exercises for your, the rest of your coaching career to, mm-hmm. to, to use for your athletes. They can pole vault. They can pole vault. That's just a given. They can pole vault as much as they want. But outside of that, there are only, you can only have three things, three specific exercises. Okay. Sprinting is one exercise. Yep. 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 You know, box jumps is one exercise squat, sure. you know, sure. You only get three. Three. Okay. Uh, I would say probably like a, a snatch mm. or some, some sort of Olympic lift. Um, you know, whether it's a, a power clean or a snatch or a hang clean or something like that, something explosive, total body. Um, we only get one. I'll so do a snatch. Get... I'll do a snatch. Okay. All right. Yep. I'll come a full snatch all the way up. I can vary the weight, those kinds of things, make it light and explosive or get a strength phase out of it. Right. Um, I would always probably put some sort of speed. Ah, that's a tough one. It's either going to be speed or acceleration. I feel like in the last few years, um, I'm starting to learn a lot more about acceleration and, and its relationship to tempo building which has become far more important to me almost than what their all out speed is. Because if they're not moving through the gears in the right way, they can't be in a position to deliver the energy at the end. Mm. And I see kids that are fast, but because of the way they, they move through their acceleration patterns, they're missing a gear and they either redline, they're spinning their wheels and they're falling apart at the end versus just like we talked about earlier, where some kids who are, are accelerating correctly from a short run can actually jump really high. Mm-hmm. So that tempo um, and how it relates to your ability to, to, to accelerate through the last few steps, even while you're running at max speed, I think is something I'm really diving into. So I don't know if I can, if I can anchor in on one right now, I would say it's either somewhere in that acceleration or that sprint, but some sort of running, if you want to give it to me that way. Yeah, I'll give it to you that way. Okay. And yeah. then uh, my third one, I would probably, um, I'd probably get on a bar. I'd probably do like a, like some swing arounds or something just to stay engaged on the days that you're not jumping something to, to do some swing arounds, whether they're boobkas or whether they're swing ups or something like that, just because I think there's some, there's some body awareness. There's some, there's some muscle memory in there in terms of what, what parts of the body you're actively learning. And I believe you can learn a lot about how to put pressure in the right spots mm. um, in your hands and in your shoulders. And even to what extent, um, the order or the, the mental process of the extension should be. I think a lot of people, um, at least a lot of young athletes think about, and even Chris, to some extent, we've worked on this with him, that when they extend, they're extending by a product of driving their hips and their feet vertically. And I think that's the, the, that's going in the back door. I think going in the front door to me is figuring out how to get your shoulders underneath you earlier and crank pressure through the hand by going, by cueing the shoulders for forgetting about what the feet and the hips are doing. The feet and the hips will move as a product of going to your shoulders sooner mm. and anchoring in on that right arm. And I think that's what like Mondo and, and Renaud and, and Chris to some extent, but you know, the best, the best jumpers in the world have figured out is how to get more pressure in that top hand earlier in the jump. So their body is accelerating through the top of the jump. And I remember feeling that in 08, how different that felt. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it had to do with this, with the load and the, the takeoff, but 
there is a part that when you get on a high bar and you and you do some things, whether it's stagnant or whether it's gymnastic or or rotational or or swing mechanics or whatever the case is, there's some there's some learning um, processes that happen and understanding what position to get to earlier and what creates more power. In so. yeah, I could totally see that. I I think a lot of there's a lot of times where I'll mention like, hey, it doesn't look like it's a strength issue for you. It looks yeah. more like a timing situation for you. Yeah. Like when they are swinging, you know, into that like swinging bupka or whatever uh, sure. you would call it. Um, sometimes the 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 timing of that and learning how to time that up uh, is is just as important as like that strength sure. that strength piece or whatever. Well, so. think of like a tug of war. Are you thinking about your feet and how hard you're jamming them into the ground in a tug of war? Or are you thinking about how hard you can crank back on your shoulders to pull? You Ooh, know what I mean? So I, like I think that. those kinds that's of a good things, idea. You, know, yeah. you, you, you instinctively think I got to drive back to do it to put more pressure in the hand to pull the rope, but you're not thinking about what your hips are doing or what your feet are doing. You're cueing it with your shoulders. So I think those are things like these little things that you can do on a bar that help people to figure out, oh, you know, a, a, a boobka or whatever you want to call it is a lot easier when as I'm moving up, I swing my shoulders underneath. And, and stay tight to the bar. The kids that go up this way and they don't get their shoulders to come down will eventually fall away from the bar. So I try to, like when, when I'm spotting kids on some of their boob kids or their shooters, whatever you want to call them, we call them shooters, but all mm. I'll do is they're strong enough, but they're slow and they're falling out. And all I'll do is I'll just move their shoulders. Like if they're extending, I'll move their shoulders underneath them. So that if, if here's the bar, I just push their shoulders back this way. And all of a sudden, bam, they come out the top easy. You know yeah. I mean? Instead of getting to here and then dropping out, it's like all I do is I push their shoulders down when they extend. And all of a sudden, it's like, hey, I am strong enough and I can stay tight to it at the top. All I had to do was, was move my shoulders back earlier in that process and focus on moving my shoulders instead of trying to stay, shoot my feet and my hips and stay tight to the bar. You know That's I mean? a much like, easier way to spot it too. Well, I, because yeah. I get up on a ladder, I literally get up on a ladder and I do the opposite of what you're saying. So you, what you were talking about is that like, you know, you're cueing to try to get the, keep the, the feet up and then the hips up. And, and so like, if you were going to spot that, you would like be there to catch their feet Right. You know, to, to well, make sure their feet don't fall off the bar or yeah, whatever. Right. You could see it would be easy if, if they're going this way, right? That right. You would stand here and you would push the back right above the hip and push their body vertical to spot them. But I found that when I would do that, if I would push a little bit here, it still went slow and they would fall out. But if all I did was gave up here and I just moved the shoulders, I pushed the shoulders back quickly. All of a sudden they felt like they could, they could move their hips through fast. And they could stay tighter and more inverted on the top of it. And I think it was that just, makes sense. Yeah. You know, and I don't know how much of that relates exactly to pole vaulting, <laughs> but it gets them to think about like, hey, you know, am I putting the cart before the horse here? You know, is there a way to think about how do I move through these positions with more power and more speed by cueing a different strength in the exercise, you know, and by cueing something different? And I yeah. think that's kind of why I would throw in some sort of uh, you know, stagnant high bar or a gymnastics high bar to where you you're working on some of those things so that, you know, somewhere you get a little, hopefully a crossover down the road. You know? Yeah. I like that tug of war analogy too. So you, you're choosing the snatch all the way from the floor. 
Uh, yeah, or a hang. Would. Because if I could come from the floor, I get the I get the strength that I want out of the fall. And if I keep it light and explosive, I can get it in my in my spring. Yeah, can you can vary the weight based yeah. on your goals yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Okay, so we got the yeah. snatch yeah. and then the sprint and slash acceleration. A, yeah, I gave a crappy answer on that one because yeah. I'm really feeling like <laughs> speed obviously is important. You know, if I had to pick, I'd probably say a fly in 15. You know what I mean? Fly like in a, 15. Yeah, okay. like a build for, for 20, 20, 23 meters and just all out for 15 meters, trying to keep that speed up, firing the neurological system, that kind of thing. Gotcha. Um, but I'm exploring that acceleration a little bit more days. is, is pretty. Last simple. random question is, uh, how, how far do you guys, what's like the furthest you guys sprint? Ooh, that depends on what time of year. Um, we'll do in the fall, um, you know, when we're in a general preparation phase, we're doing, you know, a lot of low intensity, but high volume. I always mm. feel like, I want to start at a highest volume and the lowest intensity because through the season, you can always come down in volume and right. the intensity can come up. But mm -hmm. if I start here, I don't have very far to come down. So if I get my volume up, but the intensity is low on things, then I'll move, but I'll never run more than like, if I'm, if I'm cranking at an 80, 85%, I'll probably never run longer than 80, 150 meters, maybe 150. 150. Yeah. That's okay. for like some repetitive 150s type of thing where we're just working on a little bit of strength, working on firing the hip flexors and keeping your knees up. Um, those kinds of things, when you get cued to be a little fatigued, are you a little tired? Can you still fire them, get them up, be in the right positions, not lose posture, all those kinds of things. But yeah, once I'm in season, um, I don't, I don't do a ton, probably the longest thing I'll do in a season. And I've done this with Chris a little bit where I feel like I need to get a little bit of work in. Um, I'll do like a, a build for 20, get up tall and think like I'm in the middle part of my run for about 20, 25 and then an all out sprint for 20. So that would be the longest that I would do at some point, but not very often. I think it's right. kind of taxing that kind of thing. So gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. I'm not a big, I'm training in, I, I spend most of my time in being explosive, fast, um, responsive to the ground, those kinds of things. I don't spend a ton of time in the, in the, the big aerobic phases where you're, you know, you're running for a longer period of extended time with very low intensity, you know? Yeah. In Jeff's podcast, he had mentioned that you were like a plyometric man, uh, like they used to kill well, the plyometrics yeah. I used back to, in yeah, the day. I remember, like, I remember at some point, like having a weight vest, like doing continuous hurdle hops over 42s or whatever it was. But Jeez. I knew that that was kind of my thing. Like, I think that that's, I always had the ability to kind of, you know, like in college, I went over there and started playing around on the long jump just for messing around and I ended up jumping like 24, three or something like that. in my senior year, just, I did it once at conference just to try to help the team, but right. like just the ability to, to, to strike the ground, I think was always one of my strengths. So I think that's probably when you're in training, you like to do the stuff you're good at. You know, <laughs> that's not the way it's supposed to be, but I'm assuming he probably saw some of those piles because I sucked at everything else. So. Right, right, right. Well, is there anything else that you want to mention anywhere that, uh, you know, people can, follow you i don't know if you're on instagram or anything like that but. no i'm cut from old school cloth i don't, oh, I don't have the, the, <laughs> the i don't have tw i have snapchat only because my wife has it and she will snap me videos of my son certain times certain right things. but other than that i don't have anything else i don't send snaps i don't do any of that <laughs> stuff um no twitter no whatever else the other stuff is. I do have an old school Facebook, but I don't do anything with it. So. Right, right, right. Uh, no, I'm just I excited. I'm I'm super appreciative of the opportunity to come visit with you here a little bit and talk football. I just I think I've always been a fan of the sport and 
I love the fact that I get to stay in there and coach it, but yeah. it's not what drives me. I don't, I'm not looking for, you know, coaching accolades or even athlete accolades. I'm looking for kids to come in and have just an amazing experience, find out how good they can be and have a blast doing it. And I think that's the, the part that I love about the sport is when people, we get together and we get the chance to talk and talk about pole vaulting and, you know, what, what kind of experiences people have had along the way, whether they're post-collegiates and, and just trying to make it or, you know, guys like Hartwig who were, you know, one of the best in the sport and Brad and those guys, I think that's just, that's enjoyable to me. So I appreciate cool. you to do that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, it's very apparent, uh, having talked to you that, uh, you really value trying to help other people's lives become better. So, uh, we're appreciative to you, uh, the pole vaulting community. I mean, cool. You're like a legend, man. You're, you're the man. Um, so I, I just wanted to, uh, just thank you once again for coming on. This has like been, you're, you're like my childhood idol. So it's really, really cool. So I appreciate it. I appreciate this. This has been fun. I've, I've listened to Brad's. I, I sent him a text. I think I'm super impressed, man. There's and Jeff's and, and everybody's there. They're, uh, these talks are, are really cool. You always, when you hear podcasts, you always kind of get the idea that it's, you know, oh, we're going to talk about these certain technical things and you can kind of forecast where it's going to go. But these have been really interesting to listen to. I, I can actually go out and run for 20 minutes listening to it and not hate <laughs> my life. So, uh, cause I'm not a big fan of running, but I got to do something as I get older <laughs> these days, but, um, it's just been real fun and enjoyable to, to listen to how you guys run these. And it's, it's, it's been awesome. So keep it trucking. It's awesome. Appreciate it, man. Yep. All right. Well, this is the one more jump podcast. Thank you guys so much. <laughs>